Greetings all. Welcome to the February 2022 edition of Right on Prime. I am Vanessa Cardi and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Dr. Heidi James. Great to see you, Heidi. Good to see you too, Vanessa. What's new in your world? What's new is my realization that during the last couple of years, Pete's mental health has really been an issue that has come to the forefront. The pandemic has brought that to light, and we're all getting better at talking about mental health in general, but I really wanted to focus on Pete's mental health today. What a timely topic. It's something we definitely all need to be more aware of and be more adept at managing. Do you have a case to discuss with us? I certainly do. So this young girl is now 12, but she first came to the office when she was about 10 and a half. This was two months into the full COVID lockdown in 2020. So her parents brought her in because she was very withdrawn, wanting to spend all day in her room, chatting online to her friends. She was having a lot of difficulty regulating her emotions, and she was finding it very hard to negotiate the normal ups and downs of friendships through a sort of online experience. Yeah, that sounds like a few kids I saw in my practice as well. They were bored silly, but spending hours online, essentially locked in the house while the world went crazy around them. But this young girl was showing behaviors that were more extreme than the average kid. She would go into full-on rages if she didn't get her way or if she had to interact with her family. She was threatening self-harm and even cut herself a few times. She ran away barefoot into the woods on a number of occasions, and her family were desperately worried about her overall state. Her younger brother was scared of her, and everyone was terrified to do anything to upset her because it was always so chaotic when she was out of control. Her parents were worried about oppositional defiant disorder and wanted a medical opinion. Before we go any further, can I ask about their history? For sure. So um, she didn't really have any significant past medical history except for a concussion at age five. She'd always been kind of an anxious kid. And if people were talking about things that didn't interest her, she would certainly zone out. In fact, the day that schools were shut down for COVID and everyone went into lockdown was supposed to have actually been the first day of assessments for ADHD for her. So that was a potential past medical history, but nothing had been diagnosed. Okay, so what happened next? Well, we were all clearly concerned about the self-harm and the sort of low-grade violent behavior, so we prescribed her a very low dose of risperidone to help with the mood regulation. And then we set up a plan for online ADHD assessments. These came back as positive for ADHD, and so she was started on long-acting methylphenidate. Did it help? No, it actually made things much worse. She had no appetite all day, and then she would be starving at night. Her concentration was perhaps slightly improved, but it meant that she was now able to concentrate on obsessing about her anxieties instead of getting bored with them. So eventually, after a few weeks, we switched her over to atomoxetine. And was that the magic bullet? I really hope it was. Nope, unfortunately not. Unfortunately, she had so many GI and psychomotor side effects from this that it just seemed to make everything that much worse. At some point, were you suspecting an underlying medical condition in this young lady that might be contributing to her symptoms? Oh, I did forget to mention that we had ordered some labs, a TSH, and an ECG while all of this was going on, but everything was completely normal. What about how she appeared clinically? What did you see? Well, she was pretty quiet and withdrawn, sort of hiding behind her, you know, COVID medical mask. But it seemed like all of us were acting in that way at that time when COVID was first really peaking here in North America. However, we did notice that she didn't have good eye contact, that her voice was pretty monotone and that her mom had to prompt her for some of the normal social niceties that most 10-year-olds would be able to have down pat. I'm curious to know if you were thinking about perhaps the autism spectrum applying to this patient. Yeah, well, we actually asked the parents, and they said it had never been mentioned, and they hadn't really thought of it, because up until that year, she had done so well in school and was very early to talk and read and had seemed to be meeting all of her milestones. Hmm. So let's fast forward a little bit, and I really want to know how things turned out for this patient. 
Well, after many months of trying different medications for ADHD and finally resorting to regular QHS risperidone, we discussed it with the family and decided to have her assessed for autism spectrum disorder. She underwent months of psychometric testing, and it turns out that she does indeed have ASD. You know, it's somewhat surprising and disappointing that it took so long to diagnose, and I suspect that delay is no reflection on your clinical skills, but more so on lack of resources to help with formalizing the diagnosis. And I'm also kind of surprised because when we think of autism spectrum, we often think it's picked up in those early toddler years around two or early preschool years because that's when they're showing signs of regression or developmental delay. But uh, this girl was 10. And actually, by the time she was diagnosed officially, she was 12. But after speaking to the psychiatrist who was involved in her assessments, I learned that a later diagnosis is something that can happen frequently with young girls. Interesting. Now, what do you think leads to these delays? It seems that in many cases of less severe ASD, the girls might be physically somewhat delayed compared to peers, but they are advanced with talking and reading. They can be obsessively interested in certain topics, often related to the natural world, and will only talk or think really about these things. In the case of our patient, she was obsessed with sharks and sea creatures from the age of two onwards and would happily talk about these things for hours. But if it came to other topics of conversation or just participating in regular back and forth banter, she would sort of falter. She often got into trouble for actually mumbling or not looking at people in the eye, and her fear of loud noises or changes in routine were put down to anxiety. And it turns out that that happens quite frequently. You see these symptoms and they're attributed to ADHD or or anxiety, and and it's actually ASD. And of course, though, there is a lot of crossover with ASD and ADHD and anxiety. And certainly patients on the spectrum really do experience anxiety and difficulties concentrating but the etiology of the symptoms is actually different. Now, what do you think led this patient to being diagnosed at the age of 12, finally? If it hadn't been picked up before, why was it picked up then? Well, it seems that the pressure cooker situation of the pandemic and the lockdown brought out a lot of the anxieties and the underlying dependence on routine. But in the hopes that there aren't more pandemic lockdowns in our future, I thought it was good to remind folks of this population of kids whose diagnosis of ASD is often overlooked. They tend to be girls who do well academically in the early years and who are very, very, very interested in one or two select topics as a child. They might be sort of labeled the quote-unquote odd kid who doesn't always know how to read the room and who sometimes seems a bit lost in larger, busier social situations, but otherwise they're tracking normally. And then at around the time of all the hormonal swings and other stressors with middle school and everything else going on, it can get a bit too much and they start to exhibit new symptoms, or things that were previously felt to be quirks are finally recognized as symptoms. Now, I wish we had time for an exhaustive look at ASD and its management, but unfortunately we're limited here. But can you give us an idea of how your team has approached this? Well, during the assessment process for both ADHD and ASD, she was followed by a behavioral therapist who was really working on concrete changes that could be made in terms of how she interacts with the world. She was eventually weaned off risperidone without any difficulty and put on an SSRI as once her outbursts calmed down, it was recognized that these outbursts really seemed to come from a place of anxiety. And she has close follow-up. It isn't over yet, and adolescence is probably going to be interesting, but that's a given, I guess, no matter who you are. Thanks for sharing this case. It's an important one and a good reminder that we need to keep an open mind when it comes to autism spectrum. And also to recall that it's not always picked up when a child is young. And we see that, especially with girls, that it can be a late diagnosis. And lastly, remember that there's a lot of crossover between ASD, anxiety, and ADHD symptoms. Thanks for listening. I thought it was an important one to share. But now we're going to move on to the rest of the month. 
So coming up, we have Adrian Salim talking to us about pertussis in The Generalist. We have a new guest this month, Dr. Sarah Johnson, and she is an expert in lifestyle medicine, and she's going to be talking about insulin resistance. Then you have Hobie and I ranting about the role of family doctors in hospital-based medicine. And then on rural medicine, you share an interesting case of urinary retention on a boat. I'm looking forward to the show, so let's jump right in, and I will see you on the other side for the summary. From semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hobie, we're back. Hey. With another month. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And I'm hoping you don't mind if I kind of hijack things here. I know this is Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, but uh, I have something I need to get off my chest, and I I think this is a place to talk about it. Yeah. What is it? What's on your mind? I want to talk about family doctors doing inpatient medicine. I need to have a little bit of catharsis here. Okay. Okay, because at our last family medicine department meeting, somebody made a motion basically saying that family doctors shouldn't have to do hospital work and we should get hospitalists instead. So as it stands right now in our community, if you want to be a family doctor here, you have to have admitting privileges and do inpatient care. Like, there's different permutations to it. You can form a group. You can do it all on your own. Yeah. But this proposal came up because the postulation is maybe our time is better spent being full-time in the community, in our offices, doing outpatient medicine. Wow. And my rule when I go to these meetings is, you know, just attend. Like, don't get involved. (laughs) But, Hobie, all of a sudden, I had opinions, like, really strong opinions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing inpatient care for 15 years, and I don't always like it, and sometimes I hate it, (laughs) like when it's at 3 a.m. and somebody's crashing. But gosh darn it, the thought of possibly not doing it, Uh, it it really has been worked up. Yeah, I'm with you. I love hospital-based work. I'm not a hospitalist. The majority of my job is outpatient, and as a residency program director, I spend a lot of my time thinking about training residents and working on that. But I do do weeks on the service, and I love it. I just, yeah. it, the pace is different, the complexity of patients is different, the type of teamwork that we have, we, we run a resident team, and so the type of teamwork that exists and the way that all plays out is so different than in the ambulatory setting or even in the emergency care or urgent care. Yeah. I just, it would be hard for me to give it up to. Yeah. So I was hoping we could talk about it. It sounds like we're on the same page. So we'll have to like look at it with our biases in mind. But I thought we could look at some of the literature because, you know, we do like that to guide our rants to a certain extent and maybe look at some of the data between family docs following their own patients versus hospitalists. And uh, it's complicated, but I thought we could do it a little bit of justice here. Yeah, I like that. Where it's not reviews and perspective, it's ranting, ranting and perspective. <laughs> it is really. <laughs> Time for another segment of Hobie's Rants and Perspectives! Yeah, so let's talk about the quadruple aim, right? Because we all are very familiar with that, and that may be kind of a guider here. Number one. That goal is to enhance patient experience. Number two. Improve population health. Number three. To reduce costs. Number four. And four, to improve the work life of healthcare providers, including clinicians and staff, right? And the quadruple aim is really widely accepted as a compass to optimize healthcare performance or health system performance. Right. Yeah, there's more than just us to consider and more than just our patients to consider. But 
I think really the goal of healthcare is to look after our patients. So let's talk about them first. So the question is, a family physician who has a continuity relationship with their patient and knows them well, knows what their issues are, knows their compliance issues, knows their struggles at home, knows a lot more about their patient, right? Versus a hospitalist who all they do is hospital medicine day in, day out, 26 weeks a year. That is a trade-off. Who would provide better care for that patient? Yeah, yeah. And the literature here is not exceptionally robust, but there is some, and some that look at patient-oriented outcomes, which is great. So actually, a JAMA internal medicine paper looked at this back in 2017 and compared patients cared for by their own primary care doctor as opposed to a hospitalist or another type of outpatient generalist looking after them in hospital. And they had some interesting results, which I know you wanted to share. Yeah, so quoting them, it says, we found that although patients cared for in the hospital by their own PCPs had slightly longer lengths of stay, they were also more likely to be discharged home and had improved survival even after controlling for differences in patient and hospital characteristics. So I think that's hugely important because patients like to be alive, right? And they they want to go home. And they they want to go home. So I think that is a wonderfully patient-oriented outcome to look at. Yeah, and I think some of the things you mentioned earlier about continuity of care might play into why we're better at getting them home. Because we have an idea of what the outpatient services are that they can access. We know their family. We can call their son and say, hey, Jim, I'm looking to send your mom home. Can you take Friday off to be at home? That's right. And as far as having lower chances of dying, well, that also is related to continuity of care because we know what happened in the hospital. That's right. And we can just seamlessly carry that care right into the community. There's fewer medication errors because we know what we prescribed and there's less guessing about what happened because we don't need the discharge summary. We are the discharge summary. And I think one of the key things is we get to determine when we see that patient again. Like if somebody is discharged from a hospital service, they might say, oh, follow up with your family doctor. Well, if I'm sending Jim's mom home, I just call my office and say, hey, can you book Jim's mom in next week? I need to see her for a follow up. Yeah. And that's something that's so key. I think that whole discharge process and transitions of care is so important. And it's something that you kind of glance over, but I think there is more emphasis and data being put on that. Medicare has started to pay for some of these things like transitions of care because they recognize this is a gap. It's a problem. And so I think there is something hugely beneficial to seeing the same doctor that you see in the clinic be the same doctor that you take care as a hospitalized patient. Yeah, And that for a patient... It's much easier for me to say, hey, Mrs. Smith, you're ready to go home. And they say, I know him. I know I'm going to also see him in clinic in a couple of days. And I trust him because we've worked together for X number of years, right? When he says, I'm ready to go home, I believe him, right? That he believes that I can be successful transitioning out of the hospital. That's very different when I take care of patients I don't know, where I have to build trust from step zero. And basically, the only authority I have is positional authority. I'm a doctor and work in a hospital. And so that's why you should trust me. My continuity patients trust me at a very different level, right? It's a personal level of trust. It's a personal bond that we have developed that I think matters. I think it matters when we take care of these patients. Yeah. Unless we've really flubbed it up with those patients and they're very excited (laughs) to see somebody else when they go to hospital. (laughs) Those patients say, oh, is there any other uh, doctors who can take care of me? Do I have to see her again? She misdiagnosed my gangrene and I don't have a missing a leg. He said I could just take this antibiotic at home, but now I'm here in the hospital. Oh, it's you? You're going to take care of me? Oh, dear. (laughs) My Lord, please, mercy, mercy. 
But what about cost effectiveness, Hobie? That has to be consideration to the system and uh, those who fund it. Yeah. So the quadruple aim does talk about that, right? Lowering costs. And so what we do know is that maybe there are longer lengths of stay, but it's not dramatic. It's probably less than a day for patients who are taken care of by their own primary care docs. And that we know that family medicine maybe consult specialists more than other hospitals do. But the balance back rates at seven days and 30 days, so patients being readmitted to the hospital, is really similar based on primary care versus hospitalists. And so that is not a huge driver of cost. And I know every area has their different pay structures, but I would assume that paying family physicians, primary care physicians to do inpatient care is less expensive overall than having dedicated hospitalists. Like when I compare how much I get paid for a night on call versus how much a hospitalist gets paid for a night on call, I know it's cheaper to pay me to do this work. And uh, around here, we joke, complain uh, that inpatients are 20% of the pay and 80% of the work. So we're not making much of a living doing inpatient care. But I'd argue that we're probably more cost effective. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I would, I'm smiling because we have similar conversations here where we kind of say, ah, I wonder how much the hospitalists are making when I do the same work as them. Right. <laughs> right? You should check. <laughs> but what we would say, and I think the data would bear this out, is that family physicians and primary care physicians are incredibly cost effective, right? Probably the most cost effective in terms of improving health overall. What I also like about this data, it's, it's very similar when you compare residency teams to hospitals. The residency teams maybe consult a little bit more, but the length of stay and costs are generally about the same. And so I would say there is, if we say, oh, well, residency teams are good for patients, residency teams are good in terms of quality of care, you have to be able to say, well, that family physicians and primary care physicians following their patients in the hospital produce very similar results. And I think if you are okay with that, then you got to be okay with the other two. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a key thing that uh, we strive to be as family physicians is comprehensive care providers. And many of us choose to be generalists. And this really helps um, on a population health level to have a provider who's able to function in many different places of the healthcare system. And part of what gets my goat about this conversation about the hospitalist versus primary care physician-provided care is the pitting of the expertise in hospital medicine against the better knowledge of the patient. And why can't I be an expert in hospital medicine? Like, just because I choose to work in a couple of different environments doesn't mean I'm not an expert in these different environments. And generalism and practicing to the full spectrum offered by our training and licensure, this really is the hill I'll die on, Hobie. I will <laughs> defend it with my life. <laughs> And we're very capable of being experts in inpatient care and outpatient care, too. So, and I would argue that doing both of them makes us better at providing care in any context. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. When I work with our residents on the service, I say, look, I think we can provide equivalent, if not better, care than the internal medicine teams in the hospital. But I, I say it takes effort, right? It's not, this is not easy work. And if you aren't willing to give 100% and show up every day to kind of treat every patient like they were your mom, dad, sister, brother, because they are, I say it's really hard because hospital medicine is complex and it's challenging and it's difficult and it's different. But I also believe, like you, 100% that we can do equivalent work or even better work because of some of these other things. Because we do so much outpatient care, it actually makes us better inpatient doctors. It's for all the reasons that you talked about. We understand what is possible in the ambulatory care setting better than a hospitalist who doesn't do any of that type of work anymore. Yeah. The yeah. transitions of care are so much more seamless. And as you mentioned, 
You don't have to wait for a discharge summary because you are the doctor who discharged them. <laughs> you know exactly what their problem is and where they need to be fixed. I can't tell you the number of times in the clinic I see a discharge patient and I don't have a discharge summary yet. And so I'm left wondering, what is wrong with you? What are the things that are floating out there? Is there a blood culture that needs to be followed up? Is there something, a specialist that you are supposed to be referred to as an outpatient I don't know about? And I think all of that ultimately doesn't happen when you have the same doctors and the same team taking care of that patient in the hospital and in the clinic setting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, because we're on the same page here, I'm sure we're coming across as being hospitalist bashers, which <laughs> which, which I think it's two separate things. Like defending yes. the role of the generalist physician can be different than the bashing hospitalists because yes. this type of medicine really does have its upside. And when I think of it, I think about all of our charge nurses who have to keep like the 70 family doctors who do rounds straight. Yeah. Like, yeah. it, their lives would be so much easier if there was a handful of hospitalists that they contacted sure. to get everything done. And there, there's bonuses to having somebody who's on site. Like, I do yes. rounds, and then I go to my clinic. And if That's somebody right. becomes unstable, well, we have to talk on the phone as, as I'm driving back. So, yes, there is some advantage to having the in-house hospitalist. And there are some studies showing that the hospitalist model in academic centers does get rave reviews from learners. Like they find it, it's a great service to do learning on. So, so that's important. Yeah, I love hospitalists. I want to be, I want to be, you know, I don't want any hate mail. Right? We love you. Yes, we, we love you. Yeah, I guess. And the question is, can we coexist? Is there a world, is there, is there a place where there can be both hospitalists and primary care physicians taking care of hospitalized patients? Yeah, and that's part of the quadruple aim, right, is to look at improving the clinical experience for physicians. We have a burnout epidemic, and how much of that is from some docs trying to do too many different things, like feeling like they can't do a good job of meeting the demands of hospital work and of outpatient work. So if it enhances the well-being of physicians, then by all means, we should have the option for people to not do hospital work. And then there's other people like me who would go positively shack wacky if I had to be in my office for five full days every week, plus uh, potentially on weekends. Don't get me wrong, I do not enjoy the crashing 3 a.m. patient, but at least it adds a little bit of variety and excitement to my clinical work. So I don't know, I think there's probably a role for both hospitalists and primary care providers, but it would make me very sad if all family doctors stopped doing hospital work. I think that's one of the reasons why all of us chose family medicine is we love how broad it is, right? That we get yeah. to see kids and adults and elderly patients. We get to do outpatient medicine. We get to do inpatient medicine. We get to deliver babies, right? And not all of us do all those things all the time anymore. And we recognize that. But part of what drew us to the specialty is the breadth of it. And to narrow that unnecessarily seems wrong to us. Because that is one of the reasons we value it to begin with, right? Is we believe there is benefit to being comprehensive. And so I, I'm with you. The other thing I'm taking away from this conversation is the word shackwacky. I have never <laughs> used that word ever. And I love it. And I'm going to start incorporating it into my daily vocabulary. But to me, to kind of wrap up this discussion, I, Jim Collins, we talked a little bit about this built to last. He talked about the genius of the and and that the tyranny of the or. And I think sometimes we get stuck into this. It has to be hospitalists or PCPs, right? It has to be this or that. And is there a world which we're describing where it can be both? There can be hospitalists who take care of patients. There can be primary care docs who take care of patients. And both of those are great for the system and help us take care of patients the right way. Well said. Well said, my friend. And I'll see you in the doctor's lounge. 
That's right. We talk about all the shack wacky things that are happening right? in our schedule. Oh my gosh, shack wacky has to be a Canadian thing, which happens when there's six months of winter. <laughs> like, oh, I've been inside for a long time. I'm shack wacky. <laughs> yes, I love it. It's like um, it's a word picture. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like, I totally understand what that means. Okay, Hobie, thanks for taking the time to do this. We'll connect with you next month. Look forward to talking next month. cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves three thousand grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist. generalist greetings all this is vanessa cardi and i'm joined once again by our friend and colleague adrian salim adrian has a case to discuss with us which is i'm sure going to bring us lots of valuable clinical information so adrian why don't you take it away so i'm working an evening shift in a remote ed and my next patient is a little girl. She's in the room right by the nursing station. I haven't seen her yet, but I can't help but hear her from the next room. So she's having what I could only describe as like a coughing fit, like this really harsh cough that would come in bursts, and then it would last about a minute or so, and then I wouldn't hear anything after that for a few minutes. And before I go any further, I should mention this happened in the pre-COVID era. Those good old days. Remember those? Mm-hmm, the before times. Any day now. I go to see her. She's uh, three years old. She's a very cute little girl. She's there with her mom. Mom tells me she has no significant medical problems. She has no history of asthma. Maybe just a little bit of mild eczema in the wintertime, but that's really about it. She doesn't take any regular medications. She has no allergies. And all her vaccinations are up to date. So mom tells me that her symptoms started off as a typical kind of URI symptom. She had like rhinorrhea, maybe a low-grade fever. And this was about two to three weeks ago. Then that resolved after a few days. But then this awful cough started about a week or two ago, and she's been getting these, like, what she describes as, like, coughing fits for about a minute or so, where she just hacks away, sometimes to the point of vomiting. And then in between episodes, she's perfectly fine. So mom didn't think she had any, like, whooping noise when I asked her about that. I didn't hear a whoop when I heard her cough. I certainly didn't hear that. She has no dyspnea, there's no wheezing, no persistent fever. She had a bit of a decreased appetite initially, but now she seems to be doing just fine, and she's her usual self. When she's not coughing, she's totally fine. There were a few other household contacts with a viral kind of URI symptoms at the beginning, but no one else is coughing and no one else has these sort of coughing fits. Okay, so did you find anything on your physical exam? Not a whole lot. Everything was pretty much normal. Her vitals were normal, including oxygen saturation and a respiratory rate. She had no fever. She looked great. She was well hydrated. Her respiratory exam didn't show any signs of distress and there was no wheezing or crackles or anything like that when I auscultated her lungs. So at this point, what were you thinking? The main diagnosis that I was considering was pertussis, but I had never really seen anyone with it. I certainly never heard that cough before. I didn't think it was a real possibility, given the fact that she was fully vaccinated. And common things being common, I was thinking, you know, could this be an atypical pneumonia? Could she maybe have some reactive airway disease? So I give her some salbutamol, and then I send her for a chest x-ray. Salbutamol did nothing, except make her run around like a little crazy person around the department who just drank like five cups of coffee. And the chest x-ray didn't really show anything at all. She was still having these coughing fits. So I witnessed probably about three or four of them while she was in the department. Okay, so now I'm assuming that pertussis is kind of creeping up on your differential. What did you do? So I ended up calling our public health doctor, who is one of the smartest people I know. And she told me that pertussis is indeed possible, even in fully vaccinated patients. And she thought we should test her and treat her on spec with azithromycin. Now, being a public health doc, she wanted to know what the patient's contacts were like, what their home situation was like, and if the patient was in school or daycare or anything. And it turns out that the patient was living in an extremely crowded condition. So there was about 15 people in the house. She was the youngest. There was no infants and no pregnant women, fortunately. 
and she was not in daycare or school. Okay, so what did the pertussis test show? It's a send-out test, so we only got the results back about a week later, and it did come back positive for Bordetella pertussis. And I saw her in follow-up a few weeks later. Uh, she was doing well. Her cough persisted for another, say, two to three weeks, and then it started to slowly improve after that. So why don't we leave the case here for a little bit and just talk a bit about pertussis. I, like you, have very little experience with it. I've heard the whoop a few times, but uh, not as much to be anywhere near an expert. So how common is it? So it used to be very common prior to the advent of vaccination. So in the 1940s, just prior to vaccinations, the incidence was around 150 per 100,000, and this is in the U.S. A whole cell pertussis vaccine was introduced in the 1940s, and then the incidence gradually declined over the decades. And the lowest incidence appeared to be in the 1980s and early 1990s when the incidence was around 1 per 100,000, which is a huge decline. And then in the 90s, an acellular pertussis vaccine began to replace that older whole cell vaccine. It was after this that the incidence of pertussis started to creep up again. So in 2012, there was 50,000 cases of pertussis in the U.S., actually. And why did the incidence creep up again? So it's tempting to blame the newer acellular vaccines. And it's probably a factor, but it's not likely the only reason. It's probably also because we have better testing as well, and we have heightened recognition. So that's probably playing a role as well, but we're not 100% sure why it has creeped up all the way. Okay, let's talk about some of the clinical manifestations of pertussis. Can you go over the different stages? This is something that I remember having to memorize for medical school, but as you rightly pointed out on many an occasion, Adrian, <laughs> that was a long, long time ago, like decades and decades ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. I can't be relied upon to remember something like that. When so. dinosaurs roamed the earth. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I'll defer to my younger colleague. So much younger. <laughs> so there's three main stages of pertussis. There's the catarrhal stage, there's the paroxysmal stage, and then there's a convalescent stage. Number one. So in the catarrhal stage, patients experience viral URI symptoms. So like rhinorrhea, congestion, mild cough, malaise, maybe a low-grade fever. It's basically indistinguishable from a viral URI. And it lasts for about five to seven days, just like a regular kind of run-of-the-mill viral URI. Now, the problem with the catarrhal stage is that this is when the patients are most contagious, and this is when you want to make the diagnosis. But it's also the hardest stage to make the diagnosis just because it's so nonspecific. Number two. So after the catarrhal stage, you get the paroxysmal stage. And then this is the, what we all think about when we think of pertussis. Those URI symptoms have mostly resolved, but patients just are left with that cough. And it comes on as paroxysms of cough, these kind of severe coughing fits. And it can be so severe that patients may experience post-tussive emesis. Uh, they may also have post-tussive syncope as well. Typically, patients are well in between episodes. Classically, patients will have a whooping sound after the coughing fit when the patient is finally able to, to inspire and take a breath. Now, the whoop is most often heard in children with pertussis. It's not normally heard in infants or adults. And really, in reality, that whooping noise is present not all that often. Now, this stage usually lasts somewhere between one to six weeks. And this is why it's called the 100-day cough, right? I remember hearing that patients can cough so violently that they can get rib fractures from coughing so much. Yeah, there's actually case reports of patients having like intracranial hemorrhages and vertebral artery dissections because the cough is so bad. Well, that's certainly bad, so we want to avoid that. Number three. Okay, so after the paroxysmal stage, then there's the convalescent stage. I imagine, as per the name, this is when the cough starts to wind down and these poor patients get a bit of relief. Right. Now, this stage usually lasts for about one to three weeks. And like you said, it's the cough starts to wind down a little bit. But if a patient gets another URI during the stage, it can actually exacerbate the cough. 
So you may have patients coming in saying, oh, my cough was getting better. And then I got another cold and all of a sudden it just went right back to being awful again. One little sidebar here is that we really should take a bit of time to talk about pertussis in infants because it's a whole other ball game for the little ones with pertussis, right? Like we're making it sound kind of benign and kind of a funny cough, but with infants, we've got to be a little bit careful. Yeah. So for older children and adults, aside from a few cases of brain bleeds, it normally doesn't really lead to anything life-threatening. But in infants, it's a whole different story. They can become apneic. They can have bradycardic episodes. They can get pneumonia. They can have seizures. So pertussis in infants carries a pretty high mortality rate, somewhere around 1%. So most of these infants, if they end up getting diagnosed with pertussis, they normally are admitted to the hospital for close observation. And that's a really key point. We really don't want infants getting pertussis. That's why there's a ton of focus on prevention and treatment, because we really want to try and prevent infants from getting it. And you even mentioned that the public health doctor had asked, and you know there were no kids and there were no pregnant people in the house. So those are questions you have to think about. Now, what about patients who've been vaccinated? You talked about how you thought vaccinated people are protected, but that appears to maybe not be the case. Yeah, so patients who are fully vaccinated can still get pertussis, that's for sure. However, they may be asymptomatic or they are more likely to have less severe disease or atypical symptoms. Okay, so let's move on to diagnosis and how we actually diagnose pertussis. So it's obviously pretty straightforward if you have someone coming into your department or your office and they're having paroxysms of cough and they're having post-tussive vomiting, and they have a whoop. But you just said that these classic symptoms may not be present, especially in people who've been previously vaccinated. It sounds like there's quite a bit of overlap between what you would expect with a post-viral cough here. So when should we suspect it, and how do we test for it? First of all, I should mention here that pertussis may not be super common, but it's certainly not rare either. The prevalence of pertussis in patients with a cough varies depending on what study you look at, but it appears to be somewhere between like 3 and 7%. And some studies even have higher prevalence. There was one study that said that actually 30% of patients with a chronic cough actually have pertussis. Now, to me, that seems really high. Even the 3 to 7% seems quite high to me intuitively. But I think the point here is that we definitely have to have our antennas out for it. Really interesting. I had no idea that the incidence could be that high. Now, what about symptoms? When should we consider testing patients with cough for pertussis? Yes, this is an important question because we see so many patients with a cough and we're not going to be testing every single person for pertussis. So there's actually a meta-analysis. It was from the journal Chest in 2017. And they looked at the clinical characteristics of cough in patients with pertussis. What they found were two features that were highly sensitive for pertussis, a paroxysmal cough and an absence of fever. So that means that if the patient did not have a paroxysmal cough or if they had a fever, the pertussis could basically be ruled out at this point. They also found that post-tussive vomiting and a whooping noise had a low sensitivity, but a very high specificity. So that means that if a patient had either of these, you could use them as a rule-in test. So a big caveat here is that post-tussive vomiting in kids was not very sensitive or specific. So if a kid barfs when they cough, that doesn't hold the same weight compared to an adult who barfs when they cough. How I approach this is that if a patient has a paroxysmal cough, if they are having post-tussive vomiting, or if they're having a whooping noise, then they pretty much bought themselves a pertussis swab. They're getting a swab up their nose, okay? In a child, post-tussive vomiting is not as sensitive or specific. So if that's their only finding, you don't necessarily have to go down that path. Okay, and speaking of testing, why don't we quickly go over that? Testing. So nasopharyngeal PCR from a nasopharyngeal swab is the optimal method presently, I think. Is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah. So it's basically like a COVID swab. There are also pertussis cultures and there's serology as well, but I don't know how widely available that is. I certainly can't get that where I work. 
Now, it's important to know that the threshold for testing is basically the same for treating. So that means if you have a high enough suspicion that you're going to be testing a patient for pertussis, then you should be treating them as well on spec. And I suppose the thinking is that it can take a few days or so to get the test results back. So you might as well go ahead and treat before the results come back because you obviously want to kind of stop this in its track. Exactly, exactly. So the problem with treatment is that, I think we'd mentioned this earlier, is the best time to treat is during that catarrhal stage because that's the only time where treating can reduce the severity of pertussis, can reduce the duration of symptoms, and it can also reduce transmission. But it's nearly impossible to make that diagnosis during the stages because it's so nonspecific. It looks like any kind of -of run-of-the-mill viral URI. So treating during the paroxysmal stage, and that's when most patients are going to be diagnosed, it hasn't been shown to reduce symptoms, but it can at least theoretically reduce transmission. Treatment. And how do you treat pertussis? What are the regimens? It's pretty straightforward. So macrolides are the mainstay. So either azithromycin, 500 milligrams the first day, then 250 milligrams for the next four days, or clarithromycin, 500 milligrams twice a day for seven days. You can also use trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. You can use that in case of macrolide allergy. And all of the dosing and pediatric dosing we're going to have in the show notes. And what about when it comes to contacts? Do we need to be treating the household contacts? So the answer is it depends, and it's best to check with your local public health guidelines. The CDC recommends treating all household contacts. They also recommend treating any high-risk non-household contacts. So that's like uh, anyone who is pregnant in their third trimester, infants less than 12 months, those who are immunocompromised, and those who themselves have contacts with pregnant women and infants. So someone who works in an ICU or a maternity ward or something like that. And if you do end up treating contacts, is it the same treatment regimen? Yeah, it's the same same thing. So a macrolide as first line. Okay, so getting back to your case, what happened with all of those household contacts of this little girl? Did you treat all 15 of them? So I discussed it with public health, and they recommended evaluating the household contacts and not just treating them all on spec. Thankfully, there, as I mentioned, there was no infants or pregnant women in the house. So one of the docs that I work with just stepped up in a huge way that night, and he actually saw all 15 contacts that evening. And thankfully, everyone was fully vaccinated. Only three of them had a cough, and of those three, one of them had a cough that was somewhat concerning for pertussis. So those three patients were swabbed and treated on spec, and then of those three swabs, all of them came back negative for pertussis. Well, that's good news, at least. So we were all vigilant for pertussis in the weeks and months after this happened. We tested a few patients coming in with a cough that was, you know, a bit concerning, but uh, so far everyone had tested negative. So it was a bit of mystery how this little girl got it. A few weeks later, it came out that the girl and her parents had traveled to another town a few weeks before she got sick. But again, apparently everyone that they stayed with was fine. No one had any cough or any URI symptoms. And then our public health doctor checked with that community, and apparently there was no outbreak of pertussis there either. So we'll never really know how she got it. Well, I guess we'll never know. Yet another medical mystery here on Right on Prime. But seriously, Adrian, thank you so much for this. That was a really great overview of pertussis and giving us a good sort of clinical example and reminder that even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still get pertussis, but it will likely be milder. Again, that's not to dissuade people from getting vaccinated because you still will get a milder disease, but we need to think about it and remember that it's still out there and we can't be fooled by that vaccination stamp. Thanks so much, Adrian. Thank you, Vanessa Cardi. We 
are here today with Dr. Sarah Johnson, who is a board-certified in emergency medicine physician in both U.S. and Australasia, board-certified in preventive medicine in public health with a master's in public health, board-certified in lifestyle medicine, and one of only a handful of lifestyle medicine specialist fellowship-trained physicians in the country. Good to see you, Sarah. Holy smokes. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to be here. You're obviously the perfect person to talk to about anything related to how lifestyle and disease interface. So what we're going to look at today is one of the pillars of family medicine. It's that spectrum of messed up glucose metabolism that goes from the early stages of insulin resistance right through the type 2 diabetes. And we expect and we know that this will likely generate a lot of discussion and controversy because there are many out there who believe that we should not plunk labels on our patients. We should not pathologize things like insulin resistance or prediabetes. We should reserve a diagnosis for diabetes itself. But regardless of your take on this debate, we encourage you to sit back and listen as Sarah explains some of the pathophysiology behind these issues. Because understanding this pathophysiology will really help us all provide better advice on management options for our patients as we try to lead them on the path to better health. Diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance are running rampant in our world. And the problem is actually predicted to get significantly worse each year if nothing else is done. A recent 2020 CDC report estimated that close to half of all adult Americans have either diabetes or prediabetes. So 34 million Americans with diabetes, 88 million with prediabetes. And it's actually estimated that 90% of those people with prediabetes don't know they have prediabetes yet. Where does insulin resistance come in in the lead up to diabetes? Like we know people just don't. Aside from type 1 diabetes, they usually just don't wake up one day and have diabetes. So we know that insulin resistance can actually precede clinical symptoms of type 2 diabetes or prediabetes by about 10 to 20 years. So for those patients that even have been diagnosed with prediabetes, they've probably been living with some level of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia for about 10 to 20 years prior to even having that diagnosis. So we're really talking about millions upon millions of adults and increasingly, sadly, children with insulin resistance, and the numbers are increasing rapidly. We're really trying to keep pace with this rising tide of insulin resistance with medical advancements and multiple new classes of diabetic medications. But I think most of us who are treating patients with insulin resistance and diabetes, we know that medical advancement is not going to be enough to turn the course of this chronic disease pandemic. And I think one of the things that really needs to change in the system and the how we're thinking about our treatment of this disease is currently we're really focused on diabetes management. And we all know the dirty little secret that diabetes management and complication mitigation, it really works well. And it's incredibly difficult to maintain that type of management for decades. And that's what a patient with diabetes truly needs to be managed and have their complications mitigated. From your perspective, Sarah, if we don't focus on managing diabetes, then where should we be spending our time and our efforts? My proposal and submission is that we really need to start having diabetes reversal and remission as our primary goals of therapy. And that should become the new standard of care in our management of diabetes. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you right there because those 
are not even words we use when we talk about diabetes with our patients. Like even with our diabetes educators, that's not what we're telling our patients. We're telling we manage your diabetes like diabetes is a progressive disease. It keeps on going. You're challenging my thinking here. Holy smokes. <laughs> yes. And this is not an uncommon conversation that we're having. We really don't use those words reversal and remission when it comes to diabetes. But we actually have known for decades that insulin resistance and diabetes can be reversed in several different ways. One of the most telling and more extreme examples is bariatric surgery. But while that is effective for people, unless we're planning on basically rearranging and partially removing the digestive tracts of half of America, that's not going to work for our pandemic, right? So it works for certain people with certain problems, but it's not going to work as a public health solution. So what do you propose instead? So my proposal is that as the root cause of our type 2 diabetes pandemic is lifestyle, then our method of disease reversal and remission must also be rooted in lifestyle. Okay, Sarah, if you are going to mention the words type 2 diabetes and remission together in a sentence, then you most definitely have my attention. But before we dive into that in more detail, let's just make sure we're all on the same page. So I'm going to ask you to clarify a few terms for us. Firstly, what actually causes insulin resistance? All right. I'd like to start with a basic review of energy metabolism because it helps in the understanding of the pathophysiology of insulin resistance. But don't worry, I promise not to mention the Krebs cycle other than what I just said. <sighs> so our bodies need energy to function. Pretty basic. Mm -hmm. They prefer to burn glucose as its main source of fuel. However, if it needs to, it can also burn fat and protein in energy in times of need. So our short-term energy solution is glycogen. So glycogen is stored predominantly in the liver with some skeletal muscle as well. We usually store enough glycogen to produce energy needs for our body for about 24 hours if we were to stop eating completely. We also need some sort of long-term energy storage solution for times of prolonged starvation. And in that situation, our prolonged energy storage solution is either adipose tissue or skeletal muscle. And we can go for quite a long time using our adipose tissue for energy. And that's because fat is actually very good storing of energy. If all else fails, then our final mechanism for energy use is our skeletal muscles. So the body is literally cannibalizing its muscles and energy to try to stay alive. This is not the mechanism we want to be using for energy. Oh, most definitely not. That sounds inefficient and counterproductive. Adipose tissue. Let's turn our focus a little bit more towards adipose tissue and its role in insulin resistance. Each person actually seems to have a set point that is partially genetically determined of how much adipose tissue they can actually store until the body starts saying no more. Okay. And after that gets to that point where the body says no more, you start to see fat deposition in other non-adipose cells. Hmm. So our current understanding is that the deposition of that fat into skeletal muscles, into liver, and into pancreas is the root cause of insulin resistance. Okay, this is making sense. So that deposition of fat outside of fat cells is partially genetically determined, and it actually helps to explain why certain families and certain people get insulin resistance at various levels of adiposity. So I'm sure you have some people that actually develop diabetes at a BMI of 24, not even overweight. Yep. While some people 
have a BMI of 40 and don't even have prediabetes. So there can be a lot of variability in that fat set point of when you start getting that spillover into a fatty deposition outside of the fat cells. I'm glad you mentioned that because so often when I send patients for screening blood work, I'm convinced that I'll get it back and we'll be having a conversation about their type 2 diabetes diagnosis, but no, they've got like an A1C of 5. That person still may have insulin resistance, and we're going to talk about different ways that we can be measuring for that because of that 5 to 10 to 20 year lag behind the diagnosis of prediabetes, you still can have that insulin resistance. So we're not trying to recreate a physiology lecture here, but some of these concepts are actually really key for visualizing and explaining the spectrum of glucose disturbances to our patients. So what's happening in those non-adipose cells that causes insulin resistance? So our adipose tissue obtains the fat, comes to it, basically through free fatty acid floating in our blood. The main thing that determines those free fatty acids floating in our blood are two things. It's the level of fat in our diets, and it's the amount of fat in our bodies. You know, we all have some level of supply or store of adipose tissue. And for patients who, when they become obese, they basically have spillover of those fatty acids into their bloodstream. So that's how fatty acid starts to accumulate in adipose cells. And that's actually the exact same way that fatty acids start to accumulate in our non-adipose cells. So in our skeletal muscle, our liver, and our pancreas. So we've reached that kind of set point where adipose tissue is saying no more. It stops accepting as much of the fatty acids that were usually coming to it. So these poor fatty acids are building up in the blood and they have to find somewhere else to go. And this starts this whole cascade towards insulin resistance. And exposure to these high levels of lipids actually creates a low-grade chronic inflammatory response that is toxic to our normal cellular physiologic functions. Okay, I'm with you so far. We get an increase in free fatty acids in our blood from either the fat we eat or the fat we're wearing, or both. These fatty acids should be able to find a home in our adipocytes, but there's no room, no room in the inn. So they go and find a home with those skeletal muscle cells, and then those fatty acids become intramyocellular lipids. Did I get it right? You got it perfect. Excellent. Woohoo! So the problem is that those intramyocellular lipids don't make very good house guests. We've already talked about how they are inflammatory and they can impair the normal physiology of those cells. So one of the other ways that it impairs the normal physiology of those cells is through the insulin signaling pathway. So normally, glucose in the blood will try to get into the skeletal muscle cells. And that's done by binding insulin to the insulin receptor. And the whole series of cascade of enzymes will happen and it basically will put glucose transporters into the cell wall, and they will transport the glucose into the cells. What happens is that really inflammatory, toxic cascade of intramyocellular fat impairs that signaling. So the glucose transporters never get to the cell walls, and the glucose never gets into the cells. This particularly happens when you have a high-carbohydrate meal, because there's just more carbs to go around, or because your body has gotten so used to pulling in fatty acids instead of carbohydrates that it doesn't really know how to deal with that carbohydrate load. Early in the stage of the disease, the islet cells can actually compensate for this, and they compensate by creating more insulin, basically trying to overcome this resistance by forcing glucose into the cell. 
However, our poor little beta cells also eventually become maxed out, and they experience their own lipotoxicity and cell death. And then the body can no longer compensate, and long-term hyperglycemia and overt type 2 diabetes ensues. This sounds like a sad story already, and I don't think we're any way through with the story yet, are we? No, unfortunately not. I'm going to complicate things a little bit further. And not only is it total fatty acid accumulation that's a problem, but it looks like certain fatty acids, specifically from saturated fats, are much more toxic to cells than unsaturated fatty acids. And there's a toxic kind of soup, you will, of (laughs) saturated fatty acids plus high glucose that make it even more toxic to our cells. And that's because the glucose can actually impair the detoxification and oxidation of saturated fatty acids. And so you have this kind of even worse combination, hyperglycemia, excessive fatty acids, and it's been termed glucolipotoxicity. Wow, it's really a good reminder that there's an awful lot going on at the cellular level here. And from our conversation so far, it sounds like diet is a really big player here in insulin resistance. But what about our sedentary Netflix binging lifestyles? Sedentary lifestyles also play a role. And while they are both important, I will say that nutrition is currently much more of a cause of a disease burden than lack of exercise. Interesting, interesting, because so many patients are quick to say, oh, I need to exercise more rather than identifying their diet as a problem. Right. And I think it's, we would all like to think that, right? (laughs) But we actually, we've looked at this and there was a really comprehensive kind of burden of chronic disease in America study that was published a few years ago. And researchers looked at all different aspects of lifestyle and said, what aspects contribute the most to both mortality and disability? You want to guess what the number one risk factor for contributing to mortality is? Um, McDonald's. No hesitation, no second thoughts, and no mercy. Yes, you are (laughs) correct. So dietary factors. How about physical activity? So physical activity ranks number 10 as contributing to causes of death. So it is, it's still up there. It's one of the top 10, but nutrition is clearly outranking it. In fact, studies have shown that Americans are actually exercising at the same level or even a little bit more than we were a few decades ago. So it's not this sudden dramatic increase in sedentary lifestyles that we think is going on that is the culprit for a rising pandemic of chronic disease. Does exercise factor in at all? Should we be talking to our patients about that? We do know that exercise plays an important role in treating insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And so it should be prescribed to all patients with these conditions. However, I want to get a little nuanced in this, in that in this situation of insulin resistance, exercise is prescribed as a therapeutic. It works to ameliorate some of the negative effects of insulin resistance, but it does not address that underlying root cause of insulin resistance, which is that dietary excess leading to that intramyocellular fat. So it is possible to exercise enough to overcome dietary excess and obesity, but it usually requires hours upon hours of endurance level aerobic exercise every single day which most people are not able to easily maintain. So the average workout session, if you go and run a mile on a treadmill, you usually burn about 100 calories, maybe 150, depending on your body size and everything else. It's not that hard to overeat 100 calories, right? (laughs) Right? Yes, yes. You can exercise 
but the amount of exercise it would take to overcome our dietary excess would be unsustainable for most people. So our best option to overcome insulin resistance is to use a combination of dietary change and exercise as well. Okay. Exercise. So aerobic exercise, what we typically refer to as cardio, increases skeletal muscle energy demand, right? Your muscles are burning. They need more energy. They say, give me more energy. And this forces them to either use their accumulated intramyocellular lipids or their glycogen stores. They use one of those or both of them as their source of energy as they're being worked out. Then if they run out of their own stores, then they'll start pulling either circulatory lipids or glucose from our serum. So whether your muscles burn fat or glucose at any level of aerobic exercise is a really complex issue. But there appears to be a difference in skeletal muscle tissues of those with insulin resistance and those without insulin resistance. And so in general, although there's a lot of complexities, your muscles tend to trend towards burning fat in lower and moderate intensity aerobic exercise and more towards burning glucose at higher intensity aerobic exercise. And which do we want here? Does it matter? I'd say yes and no. (laughs) If we're trying to treat the symptom, which is the hyperglycemia, we want to be burning more glucose, right? That high intensity aerobic exercise. But if we want to be addressing the root cause, which is that intramyocellular lipid accumulation, we want to be burning fat more and we might be more improved our overall insulin resistance if we're looking at more lower moderate resistance exercise. Okay. The other thing to remember about exercise is it is a very good short-term solution to insulin resistance. So we know that even a single bout of exercise can actually help improve your hyperglycemia for up to from two hours to about 72 hours after exercise. So you can get a lot of benefits from a single bout of exercise. And the longer and harder you work out, the longer those results last for. In the long term, the effects of exercise are improving that intramyocellular lipid accumulation. And it also helps to detoxify some, it pulls a lot of those lipids out and burns them for fuel. It also increases insulin action by upregulating those glucose transporters and storage in the skeletal muscle. And then strength training also increases insulin sensitivity. So it improves muscle mass and it also improves body composition. It also increases our overall resting metabolic rate because our resting metabolic rate is mainly determined by our muscle mass. So this all helps to improve our fat burning abilities of our muscle cells, and then all of that helps to improve our general insulin resistance. So you do want to see a combination of both aerobic exercise and strength training when you're prescribing exercise to your patients. Now this is really a ton of information to absorb. So before we go any further with this conversation, we're going to take a break. I'd highly suggest re-listening to this first part just to get those biochem pathways back into your brain and to help consolidate what we've learned so far. Then I invite you to come back and join us for part two, which is going to be a little bit later in the show, where we will go into more detail. Rural Medicine Talks. So this story is a little different than the usual rural med cases, as it takes place on a boat. Let's read 
Her name's Cardi B, and we're going to talk about rural medicine on a boot, which is my way of doing a Scottish-Canadian accent. It's crap! Continue. Yeah, well, it's funny because I actually also do some work for a company called Praxis that provides medical backup by phone for things like fishing vessels, some private ships, and then some scientific research stations scattered about the far north. And how it works is that someone from the boat or research station will call in to our number, and then once one of the docs accepts the call, a file gets sent to our computer or smartphone with a list of the medications available on that particular boat or site. Usually we end up talking to the captain of the ship, who has been trained to ask certain basic questions and hopefully take some vital signs. Sometimes we also get calls from the JRCC, which is the Joint Rescue Coordination Centre, which is a service provided by the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Coast Guard. So they run rescue services when there's someone on a boat in, out there in the waters who needs medical assistance. These calls can be a wee bit trickier, as the people on board don't necessarily speak French or English. They could be anyone sort of coming into the waters there. And we don't know what medical supplies they have on board, if any. And our conversations can be pretty choppy because they're being patched through satellite phones via the Coast Guard Rescue Center. But luckily, this case I'm about to tell you about happened on one of the fishing vessels with whom we have fairly regular contact. And it occurred about 200 miles off the coast of Newfoundland in the far east of Canada. So the call came through at about 1 p.m. And the captain let me know that he had a 52-year-old male who hadn't been able to pee since the night before. This patient was known for hypertension, and he took Ramipril 10 milligrams every day. Ramipril is an ACE inhibitor, for those that are ignorant like me. He also had sleep apnea. He actually used a CPAP machine, and the captain described him as a quote-unquote pretty big guy. He took no other medications and had had no allergies. And he'd been on the ship for about 10 days at that point, and they were planning to be at sea for approximately another 7 to 8 days. He had felt totally fine the day before until around supper time. That's when he had noticed some slight discomfort when voiding urine. Now, at that point, he had not had any frequency, urgency, or any sense of incomplete emptying. The dysuria that he was experiencing was pretty intense, and there was no discharge of blood. He had no history of new sexual contacts prior to getting on the boat or on the boat. He had no redness or itching at the site, and he had no history of trauma. So that had been in around supper time, and then the dysuria had recurred again at 9.30 p.m. when he went to void just before going to sleep. He was able to sleep for a few hours, but from 3 a.m. onwards, he was completely bothered and kept awake by the sensation of needing to void. However, he was totally unable to void at that point. He couldn't even get out a few drops. He thought maybe he was subconsciously scared of the pain recurring, so he tried to not to focus on needing to pee and was trying to lie down to relax, but he simply couldn't settle. The sensation of needing to void was getting more and more intense, and it basically lasted all through the early hours of the morning and all morning. He couldn't do his morning shift. And at around 1 p.m., he notified the captain, and they called me. Now, by that time, the last void had been about 16 hours earlier. He'd had no fever or chills, no vomiting, but was beginning to feel nauseated. He had no back pain or flank pain. He had no chest pain, no cough, no myalgias or shortness of breath. This was taking place during the peak of the COVID pandemic, so we always asked all of those COVID questions. And while he hadn't eaten any solids since supper the night before, he was drinking liquids. In fact, he was drinking a lot of liquids. He'd been drinking so much in order to try and get himself to pee that he probably had about two liters in the previous six hours. He had tried taking Tylenol at about 5 a.m., but he didn't have any change in his symptoms or in his ability to void. All right, seems like a pretty standard, can't pee, got it. What did he look like? Uh, can we get a visual? So the captain reported that the patient at this point was lying down and staying very still. He appeared to be in pain and looked a wee bit pale and sweaty. He was talking quietly and trying not to move. 
His blood pressure at that point was 189 over 96. His heart rate was 110. He was afebrile, and his rest rate was about 22 to 24. So under my direction over the telephone, the captain felt the patient's abdomen. He said it felt soft above the belly button, but was pretty painful below it. And the patient was definitely much more uncomfortable when the abdomen was being touched. All right, so over the phone in 17 different languages, what were you thinking, Cardi B? So I was thinking that this was probably a case of acute urinary retention on a background of possible UTI versus prostatitis, given the few episodes of mild dysuria that he had before the start of the retention. It could also have been um, acute urinary retention due to an impacted stone. But given the lack of classic renal colic symptoms preceding the retention, this seemed to be less likely, but I was certainly still considering it. And it could also have been BPH. Although this seemed pretty unlikely because it was very sudden onset and he had no previous history of BPH symptoms. Prostate cancer also crossed my mind, but again, this seemed like too abrupt of an onset for symptoms for that to have been the presenting issue, but it's certainly on the differential. So I kept coming back to the fact that we had this a case of acute urinary retention with a possible UTI as a likely source. But in a way, the cause didn't really matter here because this patient was in severe urinary retention and was 200 nautical miles from shore not just 200 nautical miles from a urologist, just from shore. And I'm pretty sure there aren't urologists like hanging around in the shoreline in Newfoundland. Well, maybe there are. I haven't actually checked it out, but my guess is that there's not. Obviously, I needed to treat this underlying cause eventually, but what I really needed to do was decompress this bladder because I was clearly concerned that this bladder would actually explode. I don't think exploding bladders is really a thing, although it should be. So what did you do? Well, the first thing I requested was that they stop the boat and turn it towards shore. This is always a tough call because turning a boat around has a direct financial impact for all of the fishermen and for the company. I was thinking that I was probably going to need to send a helicopter or a rescue boat to get the patient, and so the rest of the crew would probably be able to return to work afterwards. But in the meantime, during the hours it would take to get the patient off the boat, I at least wanted the boat to be going in the right direction, towards that shoreline covered with urologists. Then I pulled up the medication list for that boat. So this ship was remarkably well-equipped in that it had a bunch of different medications and even had urine test strips to check for UTIs. Of course, to use a urine test strip, I would need a urine sample, which was clearly the problem that I was starting off with. Reminded me a little bit of that song of There's a Hole in My Bucket. There's a very big hole in the bottom of me bucket and it can't be used, so we all say fuck. It did have tamsulosin. So I asked for them to try 0.8 milligrams of tamsulosin and a gram of acetaminophen as he was in a lot of discomfort. I also asked for a dose of ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams, in case this was a UTI or prostatitis. At least we could start to sort of calm that side of it down. I also asked the captain to call for a medevac, because even if I got this issue resolved in the short term, we wouldn't know what had caused the issue, and he was certainly at risk of it recurring. And so the last thing we would want would be for him to be sailing even further away from medical care. So they went off to give him the medications and call for the medevac, and I asked them to call me back in an hour for an update or earlier if the patient was not well. And in the interim, you did what? I would like to say that I went about my normal business for the next hour while waiting for the callback, but that would be a lie. What I actually did was look up how to do suprapubic catheters if you're on a boat and have no medical equipment. And it turns out that there are not a lot of YouTube channels on rogue suprapubic catheter insertion. Hey, it's Owen Chase. Welcome back to another episode of Newfie Ocean Medical Procedures. Today, we'll be covering the suprapubic catheter insertion, but first hit that subscribe button, like, and visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash I was trying to visualize talking the captain of a ship through a procedure I was going to have to improvise with equipment from a fishing vessel, and it became obvious pretty quickly that this just wasn't going to be a sensible choice unless the patient was actively dying and there was simply no other option. 
I figured that we might be able to get away with using a Sharpie to find the spot where to make the incision, a fillet knife, it was a fishing vessel after all, and a plastic Bic-style pen with a removable inside so it would be a bit like a trocar with a needle, and that would maybe give us the ability to relieve the pressure, but then of course I was going to be stuck with how to maintain that catheterization after that fact, and that was not obvious, and I really wasn't even going there because I couldn't figure out how I was going to do this in any secure way. I wasn't even sure that it was ethically the right thing to do. Could I really ask crew members to do this procedure on their colleague? I really didn't think so, but I figured it was better to have thought about it ahead of time and thought it through beforehand. So I kept this last-ditch step in the back of my head, and I waited for the call. It was actually about 35 minutes after the first call that my phone rang. The fact that they were calling back earlier than planned made me nervous, of course, and had me thinking about my MacGyver setup and wondering if I was going to have to use it. Turns out the medications had not been effective, which really didn't surprise me as it was too short of a time and also I didn't know what was causing the obstruction. The patient was getting increasingly anxious and he was beginning to sweat more profusely now. I asked for a repeat set of vitals and his blood pressure was still elevated at around 180 over 95. His heart rate was now around 118 and he remained afebrile with normal SATs. His respirate was certainly elevated, probably more 24 to 26 at this point, but that didn't surprise me given the degree of discomfort he was in. The medevac had been called and the helicopter would be there in approximately two hours. This made me kind of queasy, as calling for a helicopter rescue at sea isn't a benign intervention. People are putting their lives at risk to carry out such a rescue, but I really didn't see any other way. So at that point, I asked him to give him one milligram of lorazepam and call me back in 30 minutes. Why lorazepam specifically? Well, on a certain level, I chose lorazepam because I was thinking, what the heck else can I do here? And I know that lorazepam affects skeletal muscles rather than visceral smooth muscles, but I really felt there was a strong component of anxiety here, and I really wanted to try this first. What about uh, morphine or some other opiate analgesia? What about that, Cardi B? What about that? I kept sort of thinking about the morphine, but not going straight to it because I was worried, based on his body habitus, that I was going to need to give him a fair whack of morphine to even touch the pain he was feeling. And based on his history of sleep apnea, I started envisaging this nasty airway scenario where I finally managed to get his pain under control, but now he was so knocked out from the morphine that he was having apneic spells. So I tried to keep his list of emergent medical problems down to one. And of course, while benzos can also decrease your respiratory drive, I was thinking, well, let's see if we can at least take the edge off his anxiety and maybe that will help and he can go from there. And so what happened? Well, 20 minutes later, the phone rang and it was them. They were jubilant. He had voided a huge amount of urine and he was feeling much, much better, which meant that myself and the captain were also feeling much, much better. They had been very proactive and they'd already dipped his urine and it showed three plus lukes and positive nitrites and two plus blood. So I figured this was a UTI and I continued the Cipro. The medevac still came and took him away and it all went well on that front. They made it back to shore and that team of urologists somewhere in Newfoundland took care of them. And then, as usual, after it was over, I tried to reflect on some of the lessons that were learned. So reflect away, Cardi V. Reflect away. I learned that having Tamsulosin on board a boat is a great idea. For stones, for sure, but also for this sort of situation. So I'm definitely encouraging people, if you're going somewhere remote, bring some Tamsulosin. It is, of course, hard to know if it was the Tamsulosin or the anxiolytic that had the effect, because perhaps it was just the delayed time for Tamsulosin to kick in that actually worked. But either way, if this happens again, I'll be trying them both. I also probably would have given morphine up front, as this of course is a smooth muscle relaxant and would have decreased the pain and likely the associated anxiety, but that airway concern was really niggling at the back of my head, and as I said, I was trying to 
decrease the number of acute medical problems that this patient was having on board the ship in the middle of nowhere, rather than adding to them. So it was a really interesting case for me. It made me think through a lot of steps that I might have to take, and which I thankfully didn't have to take. Number one being guiding a fishing vessel captain through the insertion of a Bic pen suprapubic catheter with a fillet knife. But it made me do a bit more research on acute urinary retention and to remember not to just get stuck into one train of thought in terms of, you know, Gimson Tazulosin and insert a catheter, because sometimes you just don't have a catheter. Excellent. Simple case. No death or destruction in this bad boy. Another trick that I have used is literally putting patients into a warm bath of water. That can be hard in the adult, but in the kids, for example, you know, I've uh, got them in the sink uh, with water, they make it warm and a little anxiolytic, and then they pee like a racehorse. That term pee like a racehorse apparently comes from racehorses given uh, diuretics before the race. I don't know, but that can help as well. So uh, let us know if you've got any other tricks when you don't have a Foley catheter and you don't have anybody who can use the Foley catheter and you're a couple of hundred miles offshore. What are your tricks? Thanks, Cardi B. And I'm pretty sure there aren't urologists like hanging around in the shoreline in Newfoundland. Well, maybe there are. I haven't actually checked it out, but my guess is that there's not. Uh, does anyone need urinary catheter? Can I give a catheter to this sea otter? We're Take all two to put a catheter here on the beach. I'll help you. There's a lot of us here on the beach. There's a ship. Everyone wave. Maybe they have a UTI they need help with. Look what Hello? I found. Look what look what washed up on shore. It looks like a, a, a metal bucket with a huge hole in it that someone threw overboard. There's a very big hole in the bottom of me bucket and it can't be used so we all say f*** it. Even though we love the bucket, we threw it overboard. Now we'll never get to see the lovely bucket no more. If you're on the ocean, bring Tamsulos We are back with Sarah Johnson, our lifestyle medicine physician, and we are continuing our in-depth look at insulin resistance and ways to combat it. Let's pick up where we left off and talk about exercise prescriptions. What do the experts say about this issue, Sarah? Actually, both the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Diabetes Association published a joint position statement on exercise and type 2 diabetes in 2010. So they recommend a combination of both regular aerobic exercise and resistance training. Exercise ideally would be at least three days a week. And if you can, five days a week is even better. And there should be no more than at least two or no more than two days in between sessions to benefit from that transient improvement in insulin sensitivity. And aerobic activity should be at least moderate intensity with some possible additional benefits from vigorous intensity. Now, what is the difference between moderate and vigorous? Like people's interpretation of this varies. Is there criteria we can use to describe it to patients? So I like to actually do the talk test is the thing that I find the most beneficial for my patients to understand. Talk test. Moderate. So if you are engaging in moderate intensity exercise, you should be able to speak to a partner next to you in short phrases. You shouldn't be able to speak full sentences, but you shouldn't be so breathless that you can't talk. And that helps you to know that you're at moderate intensity exercise. 
Oh, so that's only moderate. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that was the uh, strenuous, severe. Oh my gosh, good for you. You're an Olympian. Yay. <laughs> okay, so that's moderate. Okay. All right. Talk test vigorous. And vigorous activity is you really shouldn't be able to speak even short phrases, maybe a word or two here and there, but you're working hard. And how much time should we be telling people to exercise for? The recommendations are that your exercise should be about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity aerobic exercise. So even small, frequent bouts of exercise lasting even a couple minutes can be as effective as longer exercise, as long as in the total week it adds up to those amounts. So you could do 30 sessions of five-minute exercises throughout your week. Or you could do five sessions of 30 minutes of exercise throughout your week. They still add up to 150 and they're still beneficial for your health. And I think that's really important information because a lot of people feel they don't have the time to exercise because exercise in their mind is going to the gym for two hours. And if we help them understand that, no, short little bursts do add up, I think that will increase patient buy-in. And I find that to be one of the most helpful things for my patients when they're first starting out and overwhelmed by the idea of exercising is just this concept of increasing short bouts of physical activity throughout your day. And in fact, they actually show that the cultures of the world that are most physically fit, that's how they do it. Do you have suggestions for ways that patients can squeeze little exercise bursts into their days? Because so many people are quite busy. So you go to the store, park at the farthest end of the parking lot, and walk in. And if you want to get to that, you know, just short of breathless, I guess you got to jog in, right? Or walk <laughs> vigorously. And on your way out, you're carrying the bag. So now you're doing your resistance training too. Right. Or take the stairs, right? So even, so walking stairs is considered vigorous activity up, at least not down. Are there specific recommendations for resistance training? So resistance training is also wanting to be done ideally twice to three times a week and at least one day in between for muscle recovery. So sessions should cover all the major muscle groups, and that's just arms, legs, and core, which is your stomach and back. And you should ideally try to do about five to 10 different types of exercises, whatever is minimally needed to get those main three core groups. When you first start off, you're gonna be thinking about doing 10 to 15 repetitions of near fatigue to your muscles. So you're kind of getting to the point where you're like, oh, this is getting tired, but I'm not quite about ready to drop that barbell or whatever you're doing. Ideally, you then would repeat those sets three to four times. So five to 10 exercises, 10 to 15 repetitions, three to four sets. There's a lot to remember. So eventually, if you get good at that, you want to eventually work up to heavier resistance training, and you're going to be then doing larger amounts of weight and smaller amounts of repetitions, so 8 to 10 repetitions till near fatigue. Do you have a specific resource you recommend that if patients want more information than we're able to provide in the visit, somewhere they can go check it out? I do. So there is an amazing website, and it is called exercisesmedicine.org. And they have a series of information for healthcare professionals. They have whole resource packets to help you in learning how to prescribe exercise to your patients. And it's not just for diabetes. They have specific exercise sheets and prescription pads and recommendations for a number of different chronic diseases, autoimmune, cardiovascular, diabetes, prediabetes. So it's an excellent resource for both your patients and yourself. Safety. I want to give a little note about safety with exercise. 
So we know that exercise improves insulin sensitivity. In fact, it can be quite profound after a session of exercise. And so providers should be aware of possible bouts of hypoglycemia when a patient is starting an exercise routine, especially if they're on medications known to produce hypoglycemia, such as insulin or sulfonylureas. And these medications may need a stepwise deprescribing as exercise increases. That's a helpful hint because I think we tend to forget about that. Diet. All right, I think it's time to circle back to diet because, as you mentioned already, dietary changes are really where the money is. And I'm hoping we can start with carbs and also touch on calories and other dietary considerations. I don't know if you've heard, you probably have, the term, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Yes, I've heard that. I don't believe it, but I've heard it. Okay, good. I'm glad you don't believe it because I don't believe it either. (laughs) But I'm going to give you another one. A carb is not a carb is not a carb. Okay, so eating a teaspoon of sugar is not the same as eating an apple? Is that kind of what we're getting (laughs) at here? Yes. And I think we all get that on a personal level, right? We know that the same number of grams of carbohydrates of a soda is going to be much different in how our body handles it than, like you said, an apple. And this is that whole idea of glycemic index. So glycemic index is simply measuring for X number of grams of carbohydrates, how much does that food raise your blood sugar? And certain foods that are easily digested by the body and easily absorbed into the body are high glycemic index. Sugar would be a great example. If I just fed you a teaspoon or two of sugar, your blood sugar would raise much higher than if I fed you the same amount of grams of carbohydrates from that apple. Right. And when I think of a teaspoon of sugar versus an apple, Sarah, I think, wow, that sugar is a lot more processed than the whole apple. So this probably makes sense to us on practical terms as well. So that apple that you're talking about, our body is going to handle that much differently than applesauce. Because how have we made applesauce? We have usually blended it and we've skinned the skin off the apple. So we've taken a lot of the fiber out. We've taken a lot of the vitamins and minerals out. And we've broken down a lot of those cell walls that make it much easier for us to rapidly absorb that glucose. So fiber only occurs in the plant kingdom. It doesn't occur in the animals. And it actually contains most of the vitamins and nutrients, and some of the proteins are really tightly bound to that fiber. So when you remove that fiber from a food, you take away a lot of the vitamins and the minerals and the nutrients that go with it. And most of our processing of food that we do is some level of taking away that fiber. Okay. So. That apple becoming that applesauce, we've taken away some of the fiber and we've broken down those cell walls so that our body can much more easily rapidly absorb the glucose. And now take it one step further, even beyond that applesauce and apple juice, right? So the apple juice, we've removed all of the fiber and we're left with just pure sugar water. And so that's going to make it even easier for our body to absorb those calories and that glucose. So for the exact same number of calories of an apple versus an applesauce versus apple juice, your body is going to have a much higher glycemic response to the apple juice and a moderate response to the sauce and a lower response to the apple. But it gets even more complex from that (laughs) because you actually probably don't absorb the same amount of calories. 
So let's say we're taking that example of that apple and you have 100 calories worth of full apple versus applesauce versus apple juice. You're going to absorb 100% of the apple juice calories. Mm-hmm. Where you might only absorb 85 of those 100 calories of the applesauce, and you might only absorb 75 or 60 calories of that 100 calories of apple, because some pieces of it are still going to go through you undigested. Well, now that you've done such a great job breaking that down, pun intended, it's really clear to me why processed foods are not as good for us as whole foods. And now I think it's time for a few comments on really the main nutritional villain in our modern day Western diets. Fructose. Our nutrition system has unfortunately created one of the worst forms of carbohydrates for glycemic control, and that is fructose. Ah, yes, the culprit, the culprit. It sounds so benign because it sounds like fruit sugar, but mm. yes. Not so much. And it actually is benign when it is in whole fruit form. But the problem that becomes is more of the refined sugars and the high fructose corn syrup. And there's something about that artificial refinement and concentration that makes fructose much more dangerous to our systems. And they've actually done studies that show that fructose can actually impair glucose uptake into our systems. And again, I'm talking about the high, high fructose corn syrup and artificial sugars. And they actually impair lipolysis, so burning down of fat. And so you can see how that could create a problem with insulin resistance because you want to be burning that fat so that you can break down those intramyocellular lipid accumulations. But fructose is actually impairing that. So it kind of fans the flames and fuels that fire of insulin resistance. Hmm. So there's actually a level of toxicity with fructose. The toxic level of fructose seems to be around 50 grams a day. And that's where we start to get all of this insulin resistance problems and its contribution to toxicity. You want to take a guess on how much Americans are eating every day? Um, more than 50. <laughs> yes. <laughs> About 75 grams per day. Ah, a lot more than 50. Yes. USA! USA! And ideally, we would have zero grams of refined fructose or high fructose corn syrup in our diet. Because remember I mentioned that the fructose from fruit doesn't seem to be as deleterious to our health. And there's a number of different reasons for this, but some of it is there's polyphenols in the fruit that actually decrease the glucose absorption by our intestinal cells. Fruit has a lot of water and fiber that slows the absorption of glucose and fructose. And so when we're talking about fruit consumption, it actually appears to be neutral with your risk of diabetes or even lowering your risk of diabetes. Whereas consumption of these refined sugars, high fructose corn syrup, are highly associated with raising your risk for diabetes. So it's not just the carb. Right. It's the type of carbohydrate. It's the processing of the carbohydrate. And it's the refining of the carbohydrate that create a lot of the problems with insulin resistance. So what I hear you saying is it's probably best to eat something right from the tree than it is to uh, eat something right out of the package or the can. Yes. So why don't we talk about what would be my ideal dietary prescription for patients with insulin resistance? Ah, yes, this will be very helpful because many patients um, struggle. And we find it hard to help them move from their current eating to eating that would be better for them. 
So the diet pattern that would reverse insulin resistance to the greatest ability would be one, one that is low enough in calories to put us in calorie deficit instead of excess. Two, it's low in processed foods. Three, it's low in total fat, but especially low in saturated fat. Four, it's high in antioxidants to deal with the inflammatory cascade. Five, it is low in animal protein. Six, and it is high in fiber. The diet that I'm recommending is something called whole foods plant-based. And what that simply means is predominantly plant-based, so your diet should consist mainly of plant foods, and then it should be mainly unprocessed plant foods. That's when we're talking about whole foods, right? And that amount can vary. However, I'll tell you that the most of the data that we show, like these blue zones or other eating kind of research that we've seen, is that those who eat mainly plants and only about 5 to 10% animal products tend to have the best health results. And, and that's going to put you at the greatest chance of diabetes reversal. So really minimizing the amount of animal products that you're consuming. Yeah, so 5% animal products ends up being about once a week, like meat once a week or a couple times a month. You know, in order to convince some of my more carnivorous patients, I think I'm going to need some stats. Have there been any studies that I can quote to my patients on this topic, you know, to give them something to chew on, so to speak? We have a number of large cohort studies that show a stepwise decrease in diabetes with a stepwise decrease in animal product consumption. So basically, we know these populations that eat mostly plants have the lowest risk of diabetes. And the more plants you consume, the less your risk of diabetes. So those that were eating, let's take one study that I know very well. So it's the Adventist Health Study. So it looked at this blue zone that I'm living in now in Loma Linda and looked at a cohort of Adventist people who traditionally eat a lower um, animal product diet. And so they had a lot of different people that they could look at. And some people were consuming some amounts of meat. Some people were pescatarian. Some people were lacto-ovo-vegetarian. And some people were vegan, so no animal products at all. And they showed basically the more animal products that you reduced and got out of the diet, the less your risk of diabetes. So it's this nice stepwise approach. And that's important because when we see these stepwise approaches, that tends to get more at causation than correlation, right? Because you can't really tell causation in large cohort studies. You can only suggest it. And two other studies are the Nurses Health Study, which has had a lot of good evidence come out of it. And then there was another cohort of Taiwanese Buddhists that looked at their overall risk of chronic disease based on their dietary patterns. Again, this is the real trick of nutrition research is you just can't do those randomized controlled trials. So we have to look at these cohort studies and long-term studies and, uh, and tease what we can out of it. Yes. Yeah. And that is, you're hinting at it, right? So there's problems with nutritional studies because there's no placebo-controlled, blinded study that you can do. You can't blind a patient to what they're eating. And the other nice thing about this eating pattern, despite the loss of weight and some insulin resistance reversal, is Ideally, you would also want a diet that reduces many of the risks of complications of diabetes, right? And so it just so happens that plant-based diets, the research has been shown that they decrease cholesterol levels, they lower blood pressure, they prevent and reverse heart disease, they delay the progression of CKD to dialysis by about one to two years, they reduce the risk of cancer, they reverse diabetic retinopathy and neuropathy, and they improve immune functioning. So it's not just insulin resistance reversal that we're talking about. We're talking about many of the complications of diabetes and then many also of just the long-term complications associated with this chronic disease like CKD and heart disease. 
a panacea is a strong word, but this seems about as close as we can get in the area of diet and what we put into our bodies. Yeah, I, I, would, I agree with you. I don't want to call it that, but there is a lot of evidence out there that shows it is very effective for multiple different aspects. And again, this is the reason why it's so much more successful for disease reversal than some of the other diets. Sarah, can you give us a snapshot of what recent research is saying about this topic? You can randomize patients to what they're eating. And you can control the study, you just can't blind patients. You can blind the researchers, of course, too. The one that's had the most interesting information that's come out recently, again, is called the BROAD study. And this was a group from New Zealand of primary care providers who took their patients and put them on this whole foods plant-based diet for three months. And then they had a control group that was given standard dietary recommendations. And for the three months that the patients were on their study, they had their intervention, and then they again followed them long-term even after the study. So those that were in the intervention group dropped their hemoglobin A1c 5 millimoles per liter, while those in the control group raised their hemoglobin A1c 2 millimoles per liter. So a difference of 7 millimoles per liter for the intervention versus the control group. We also know that those on this whole foods plant-based diet lost a lot of weight. So the average weight loss of the intervention group was 12.1 kilos at six months and 11.5 kilos at 12 months. So maintained pretty well even after the study was gone. And the control group lost an average of 1.6 kilograms at six months, so much less weight loss. And the interesting thing about this diet is they just instructed people to eat whole foods, plant-based, and didn't tell them anything else. They didn't make any recommendations about exercise. And they didn't recommend any kind of calorie counting or portion control. So this is what's called an ad libum diet. So they just said, basically, eat until you're full. Just eat this certain type of food. And the researchers claim in their study, and I agree with it so far, that to the best of our knowledge, this research has achieved greater weight loss at 6 and 12 months than any other trial that does not limit energy intake or mandate regular exercise. And so it has been the most successful diet to maintain weight loss without calorie counting or portion control or mandated regular exercise. So this seems like something that could be sustainable long-term. Wild. Okay. This has been a helpful review of your approach in long form, and I'm hoping now you can give us just the bullet points. Recap. I do recommend a nutrition, and not just a nutrition prescription, but an exercise prescription as well. So they can be used in conjunction. So not only am I talking about nutrition, I'm talking about exercise. And then I also talk to my patients about the other pillars of lifestyle medicine that we haven't talked about today that have beneficial effects for overall health for people with insulin resistance. But I would say that diet and exercise are the top two. And if you only had to pick one, nutrition is going to trump even exercise for this issue of insulin resistance. We've reached the end here, Sarah. If you wanted to wrap all of this up, I mean, I think you just did a good job there, but if there's any parting thoughts, anything you wanted to make sure all of our listeners know, what would it be? My biggest thing that I really want to convince primary care doctors is this idea that diabetes is reversible. And that is a big paradigm shift for most of us, right? So we think of diabetes as a chronic, you know, relapsing, remitting disease. That's just going to advance to all of these end-stage emergencies and 
I know we all feel heartbroken when we see it, right? We see, you know, we hate seeing our patients go on dialysis and have heart attacks and blindness and neuropathy. But the only thing that I, if I could not impart anything else, is the concept that diabetes is actually reversible, right? So there is hope that you can provide to patients. And it's difficult, but it's not impossible, right? And for most people, it's certainly preferable than going on that pathway towards all of those horrible chronic disease emergencies and end-stage and organ diseases that we see. And so if I can convince you of nothing else, is just this concept that we know that insulin resistance and diabetes is reversible. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. I've learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to learn a ton. And I can't wait to have you back so we can talk about some of the more pillars of a healthy lifestyle. Great. I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to come back and let's chat some more. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Welcome to the February 2022 Primary Care Medical Abstracts. That's PCMA, part of that bigger family, that huge family that is EMRAP. And it's February, the shortest month of the year, but it's not going to be short on love because you know what, Steve, I love doing PCMA with you. Yes, definitely. And I agree. I don't know if we could be short. So we'll still do our same 10 papers. Oh, they're still going to get that 10 papers. But, you know, I love talking nerdy. So, you know, it's hard to shut me up usually. But I was looking through the list and I go, you know, it's February. We didn't plan this at all. Shouldn't there be a whole bunch of cardiology papers? Uh, Zero. Yeah, like like heart papers or broken heart papers, maybe. Yeah, you know, like not not this month, but, you know, they're good papers, they're important papers, they're things that we can take away from, things that we can learn from. And so let's get rolling with these 10 papers that we have hand-selected, crafted, molded, critically <laughs> appraised, and then delivered with this lovely, lovely presentation for the listeners. So I've got number one. Paper one. I'm going to start it off. And this is aspirin use to prevent preeclampsia and related morbidity and mortality U.S. Preventative Service Task Force Recommendation Statement, JAMA 2021. Now there may be some listeners who might be getting a, a taste of deja vu here. We have been doing this long enough, you and I, Steve, that we've actually covered the Preventative Services Task Force previous publication on this topic. I mean, it was for 2014, so we've been doing this long enough that now we're reviewing the updates. Maybe that means it's time for us to retire when we're just going over the same material again. <laughs> but there's new information, so it's an update. Exactly. One of the reasons I love medicine and that the practice of medicine, because it's about lifelong learning. And just when you think you may have it all under, no, another thing comes out and there's always more to learn. So I don't think I need to educate the listeners on preeclampsia, but it is a complication of about like one in 25 pregnancies in the U.S. And it contributes to infant mortality and maternal mortality. 
So this updates, like I said, the task force publication from 2014, but we reviewed it on PCMA in April 2015. And the definition, preeclampsia, you know, it's that blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 on a couple of office visits and some protein in your urine. And then there's details about what that means for protein in the urine. Now, interestingly, you can still diagnose preeclampsia without protein in the urine if the woman has thrombocytopenia, impaired renal function, kidney insufficiency, pulmonary edema, or cerebral or visual disturbances. So just keep that in the back of your head. Don't go, hey, they don't have any protein in their urine on this dipstick, so it can't be preeclampsia. Oh, it could be. So the task force gives a level B, and we know that we be doing it, right? It, it be, better be doing it. So that's the B recommendation for low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams per day, as a preventative medication after 12 weeks of gestation in persons who are at high risk for preeclampsia and don't have any contraindications to aspirin, obviously. Now, high-risk people, they are people with a history of preeclampsia, so if you've had it before, multifetal gestation, chronic hypertension, pregestational diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, uh, kidney disease, autoimmune disease, or a combination of multiple moderate risk factors. But low-dose aspirin is actually also recommended if people have two or more moderate risk factors, which include null parity, obesity, family history of preeclampsia, age 35 or older, personal risk factors, which we can list in the show notes. And then you should consider low-dose aspirin with moderate risk factors in black people and those of lower income. So these recommendations really haven't changed that much. But what has changed is that we've got more robust evidence. We've got stronger evidence to support what we're doing. It gets a little complicated with me with that, those moderate risk factors. So I skimmed over them a bit. I need an app for that. Or, you know, I need a smart EMR that could flag it for me and go, hey, you know, they're not high risk, but they, they got a couple of moderate risk there factors, Kenny. You should look into that. Yeah, the really interesting statement about racism in this. Yeah. The disparities that we see in black patients in the U.S., I'll quote here, largely result from historical and current manifestations of structural racism that influence environmental exposures, access to health resources, and overall health status. So saying that race is a social construct that have led our patients to be at increased risk. And so, for example, if you have a black patient who is over 35 or had in vitro conception or is lower income, that's two risk factors. And so basically what that's saying is our health system in the U.S. is so racist that we have to add a medicine for people who have a different color skin. And so I agree with you. That's very hard to tease out in, in our patients. Bottom line. B, recommending low-dose aspirin to patients who are at high risk for preeclampsia after 12 weeks of gestation. Paper two. Okay, paper number two is entitled U.S. Emergency Department Visits Attributed to Medication Harms 2017 to 2019, JAMA October 2021. We know that a lot of visits in the emergency department are as a result of medications, either from therapeutic use or non-therapeutic use. And so these authors tried to describe the characteristics of emergency department visits for harms from medication use in the U.S., they use a massive database, which is, has a super long name, 
the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System Cooperative Adverse Drug Event Surveillance Project. Wow, that's very catchy. It's pretty cool. It actually monitors 60 representative hospitals in the U.S. that have to be like a certain size and they have to have a 24-hour ED. There's a partnership with the CDC and FDA and a couple other organizations. So they've trained reviewers from these organizations, found visits that were attributed to medication harms. They report the diagnoses and the method of use of the medication. And so therapeutic use is when you use the medicine for what it's supposed to be used for, and you had an adverse effect. Non-therapeutic use is, there's five categories. Unsupervised exposure for kids under 10, so that's like, you know, the medicine cabinet wasn't closed. Misuse, abuse, self-harm, or there's a category if you don't really know why the person ended up taking it. They ended up finding almost 100,000 cases, and it works out to an average of six ED visits for medication harms annually per 1,000 population. And these are pretty, like, morbid visits. 38% of these visits require hospitalization. And not surprisingly, patients over 65 have higher visit rates, 12 per 1,000 population. 69% were for therapeutic medication use. But if you look at patients under 45, it kind of tips so that over half of the visits are for non-therapeutic use. You won't be surprised to know that in people over 65, the most common visits for therapeutic use are anticoagulants and diabetes medications. In age 25 to 54, the most common visit is non-therapeutic use of benzodiazepines. Self-harm is common in patients age 15 to 24. And unsurprisingly, children under five have unsupervised medication exposures. And also, you will also not be surprised, antibiotic side effects. So medications with the most visits, I boil it down to the big five for you, Ken. You can count them on one hand. Thank you, my friend. Number one, analgesics, mostly prescription opioids. Most of those are non-therapeutic use. Number two, sedative hypnotics, mainly benzos. Number three, anticoagulants. Number four, diabetes, mostly insulin. And number five, antibiotics. So those are the big five that cause ED visits. So this doesn't really tell us how likely a patient is to have an ED visit from a medication we prescribe, but it could help us sort of figure out like what medicines we should be using, especially benzos and opiates. And also if you work in an emergency department, it's pretty helpful to help you figure out, you know, what, what is bringing your patients in. Well, I really like the fact that you always seem to pick the emergency department papers. I try to not pick them on purpose because <laughs> I do a lot of emergency room work. And so I try not to pick the ER and you always do. So I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, when I was reading this paper, I think it probably really underestimates the problem because this does, by definition, only capture the people that were seen in the emergency department. It doesn't capture people that are coming to the primary care clinics, the urgent care clinics, the after hour clinics, you know, these other places to access care. So I think we're probably underestimating but I don't want to get lost in the numbers. It doesn't matter how many percentage. I think your top five list is pretty representative. The overall ethos is, you know, we're probably over-treating and over-medicating, and there's a lot of things rumbling around in people's medicine cabinets that can lead to a unscheduled emergency department visit. And we just need to be careful of that. Bottom line. Visits to the emergency department for medication adverse effects are common. 
and the notorious medications vary by patient age. Paper three. Abstract number three. This is the effect of music therapy on improving sleep quality in older adults, a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society of 2021. I just want people to note that this paper that we included doesn't include a pharmaceutical intervention. Steve, do you think that this will protect me or you from being called out on social media for being a shill for big pharma? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we should be good. We're not in like the music industry or we're a shill for like big music or something like that. Big music, yeah. Difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep. This can be a real challenging issue as people get older and it can impact their physical and mental health, even if they're not an older person, right? We need a good restorative sleep. And so the goal of this systematic review was to determine if there was any effect from listening to music on the quality of sleep in older adults. So because it was a systematic review, they were good to follow the PRISMA guidelines. They searched five databases looking at the efficacy of music therapy to treat people 60 and older. I'm starting to get a little insulted by that number because that's considered old and I'm, you know, turning 55 shortly. So um, they included randomized control trials that were published in either English or Chinese they used an outcome scale that I was not familiar with, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. I don't know, do people have trouble or good sleep in Pittsburgh? I don't know, but it's named the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And for those like me who weren't familiar with it, it goes from 0 to 21. And the scores that are higher than 5 indicate that you're having poor sleep quality. So the higher the number, the worse the sleep. They assessed the bias of the included studies using the Cochrane Collaboration Tool. And the result was that listening to music resulted in significantly better sleep quality compared to those who didn't listen to music. Now, the actual number is they found a mean difference of two, roughly. And it was statistically significant. Okay, well, two on a scale of 0 to 21. We'll talk about that. Sedative music was more effective than rhythmic-centered music. I don't know if they compared it to like thrash metal and, you know, uh, all these different musical genres, big band music, ska, house. They just said sedative versus rhythmic centered music. I'd like to get their playlist on Spotify and see what they're actually listening to. Listening to music for more than four weeks was also found to be more effective. So if you were listening to it regularly. What this systematic review really suffers from, though, is a lack of data. Five trials included, under 300 patients. So you know what that means, Steve. Little crappy studies. Yeah, and you're mashing up a bunch of little crappy studies. The heterogeneity was high at 67% on the I-squared test. This makes me skeptical of the main result and even more skeptical of getting into the subgroups. The minimal clinical important difference, I looked this up, for the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, yes, I have no life, has been reported at three. And so remember, they found a mean difference of two. So yeah, sure, it's statistically different, but whether it's actually clinically significant, be skeptical of that. All the participants were community dwelling. So if you're going, hey, you know, maybe I can start pumping music through the skilled nursing facility at nighttime or long-term care facilities. These people were excluded. So no, nah, you can't extrapolate to that. And three out of the five studies had high risk for bias because of lack of blinding of the outcome assessors. So 
Steve, what did you think? Are you going to start pumping music at night? So sometimes they can blind the outcome assessors, but how do they blind the patients, right? Like, you know that you're getting (laughs) sedative music in your room. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So the blinding is really hard. And I wonder if our audio engineers could come up with a, you know, small sample of sedative music now. Mm-hmm. And then rhythm-based music. Well, I'm thinking something Latin, you know, like like Gloria Estefan, the rhythm is gonna get right. you. Boom, boom, a good night's sleep. I mean, I guess sedative music would all be kind of like new wavy, sort of just like sounds and stuff. So I don't know if the placebo group could just be like frogs croaking or ocean waves or what. Or orcas or... Yeah, I'm not super impressed by this. Bottom line. If you like listening to music when you're going to sleep, hey, you know, sure, fine. I'd be happy to say to a patient, if you like listening to music, give it a try. But we need more and higher quality evidence before routinely recommending this for sleep disorders in older adults. Paper four. Paper number four just answers a long-standing question for me. It's the relationship between umbilical cord gas values and neonatal outcomes, implications for electronic fetal heart rate monitoring. So I, my residency I did at a general hospital, and we hardly ever did cord gases. And then I worked for four years in the Indian Health Service, and we hardly ever did cord gases. And then I moved to our community hospital, now academic hospital, and there were certain physicians that would order a cord gas on everybody. And so our poor interns had to make those little segments of the cord where they could like clamp it and then draw it off in case the attending said to them like, where's your cord gas? And this study actually looks at whether those cord gases are correlated with fetal outcomes. So The fundamental assumption of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring is there's a link between fetal tolerance of labor, which is measured by metabolic acidemia, and neonatal outcome. And so supposedly the fetal heart rate pattern is supposed to be indicative of this acidemia. And they use here the five-minute APGAR, which is a short-term outcome. You might say, well, that's not disease, that's not patient-oriented evidence. But there is some research showing that it does correlate well with longer-term outcomes. So the first leap of faith here you have to make is that the five-minute APGAR is important. So the authors sought to look at umbilical artery cord gas values and correlate those to APGAR score. We're not making any effort here to say whether this test changes our management. They did a retrospective cohort of almost 30,000 singleton non anomalous fetuses delivered at one institution for a period of eight years up to July 2020. And at this hospital, they universally obtained umbilical cord gas values. So the poor interns there had to learn to make the segments and draw up the thing and whatever. And they also looked at APGAR scores and then compared this with a statistical analysis. The results are the statistical correlation between umbilical artery pH and one in five minute APGAR is, quote, weak or non-existent. The receiver operator characteristic curve shows what they call a, quote, optimal cutoff of pH of less than 7.22 for a severely depressed newborn. But the sensitivity of that's only 62% and the specificity 78%. 
which is a positive likelihood ratio of 2.8 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.48. So that's really not useful. And again, no discussion of whether this will actually change our management. So the conclusion here by the authors is there's a poor correlation between cord blood pH and subsequent APGAR and that this weakens the fundamental assumption of fetal heart rate monitoring. And I'll take it even one step further to say, this is truly the emperor wearing no clothes. We should have abandoned this long time ago, this test, and hopefully you have at your hospital. I can't figure out a way it would change management, even if you don't use it routinely. Like you're not gonna like treat the baby differently. You're gonna supportive care of the baby regardless. It also kind of starts to imply that routine continuous fetal heart rate monitoring should be de-emphasized, which we've talked about a million times, but this is highly entrenched in OB practice in the United States. Well, Steve, I want to unpack some of these things. First of all, fetal heart rate monitoring had been shown to decrease death, but not hypoxic injuries. And you said there was a bunch of leaps of faith. And so we were looking at children that were alive, not that had died, right? So- Okay, so you're going to be fetal heart rate monitoring. Well, then they say, well, the fetal heart rate patterns have been used to predict the pH, and pH was thought to predict outcome, and yet this pH and APGAR scores didn't seem highly correlated. When you, when you talked about the likelihood ratios, I was thinking to myself, okay, the positive likelihood ratio was it sucks. <laughs> the negative likelihood ratio was it sucks. Right? Yeah. And so I didn't have to put on my college application, hey, Steve, what was your APGAR score at one minute and five minutes? <laughs> really? Like not very patient oriented. But here's the big thing. Virginia APGAR. Yeah. She was a superhero of science. I mean, reading about her in preparation for this, you know, she wanted to be a surgeon and she was talked out of it by who? Dr. Whipple. Mm. Yes. Of Whipple's triad, Whipple's disease and the Whipple's procedure. And he talked her out of going into surgery, and so she went into anesthesia. And I'll have to tell you, I was multiple years into practice when I realized that APGAR wasn't an acronym. Yeah, right. You know, A, okay, activity, P, pulse, mm -hmm. grimace, appearance. I thought that's what it meant. I was years into my practice before I knew it was the woman's last name, the doctor's last name. She is a superhero of science. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Dr. APGAR. Bottom line. Arterial cord blood gas correlates poorly with APGAR scores. Paper five. Here we are up to abstract number five. An infant carrier intervention and breastfeeding duration. A randomized control trial in pediatrics 2021. See, we've got a second paper that doesn't involve a pharmaceutical intervention. Love it. The who, the who... Who am I talking about? The who, yes, we're going to get into an Abbott and Costello routine here. <laughs> who advocates for breastfeeding for at least two years, right? Two years. So the aim of this trial was to say, hey, if we give parents this really nice infant carrier to have some nice bonding and direct contact and stuff during pregnancy, would it increase the likelihood of breastfeeding? So they randomized... Two groups, obviously it was non-blinded. I guess they didn't have a backpack up front with no baby in it. But they randomized them, 100 parents, at 30 weeks of gestation into this ergonomic infant carrier, which was provided by the company. And they were given instructions on how to use it. And then there was another group that were just waitlisted, so they didn't get something. 
And then they assessed feeding outcomes using an online survey at six weeks, 12 weeks, and at 26 weeks postpartum. They didn't find any statistical difference early at six weeks or mid at 12 weeks. But breastfeeding or feeding expressed breast milk at 26 weeks was statistically higher in the intervention group than in the control group, 68% versus 40%. So a difference of 28%. Number needed to treat a four. Exclusive breastfeeding was higher in the intervention group at all three times, but not statistically different. So this trial does have several issues that threaten the validity and limit its generalizability of the results. I did mention it was sponsored by the infant carrier. They did not do a power calculation a priori, which is a quality indicator. It doesn't bug me that much if they don't do an a priori power calculation. Like, it's good if they do. But then you can't come back and say in your discussion, well, the reason we didn't find anything was because it was underpowered. That's an oxymoron because doing a power calculation is to say, how many people do I need for what we're going to assume the delta, the difference will be the effect size. Once you've got your data, once you've got your cohort, you don't have to assume anything. The data are what the data are. You've got the data, right? And so it always bothers me when they come in post hoc and say, well, it was due to a lack of power. No, that's your data set. That's what it is. Trial wasn't blinded and that could have introduced bias. You know, if they knew, oh, okay, carrying the baby up front is going to increase breastfeeding. The patient population mainly came from low income and predominantly Latinx populations. The participants self-reported. And so you can imagine if there was an unconscious sort of breast is best, you'd be more likely to say, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, breastfeeding is going great. Thanks very much you know, to confirm it rather than actually having some objective way of doing it. More than 20% in both groups were lost at 26 weeks. So even though there was 50 in each arm of the segment, there weren't 50 at the end of the 26 weeks. And that's the only time that they found that statistical significance. They did do a sensitivity analysis and it still came out okay, but whatever. And having a follow-up period of only six months, you'd also have to wonder, well, that's not the two years that the World Health Organization talks about. And the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends breastfeeding for at least one year. So why have a six-month time frame? But that's what I have to say about this one. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool because you it would be pretty easy to do a observational study. But then the patients that wear these are probably like very attached to attachment parenting and very strong proponents of breastfeeding. So I actually think this is really cool. I think If I had a patient who said, you know, what could I do to be more successful with breastfeeding? I would say, well, maybe you should get one of those carriers that you can wear around. And I think that that's a perfectly good thing to suggest for a patient. Yeah, no, and I agree with you, Steve, that it's a reasonable suggestion and stuff like that. And especially if people are motivated and want to do it. But then again, I also wouldn't want to shame or blame people for not doing it and saying you're not being, quote, successful and setting them up for failure. I just want to be supportive of the parent. And parenting is hard and feeding children is hard and raising children is hard. And you've got my support. However, you determine it is going to be successful. Good call. Bottom line. Infant carriers may increase the duration of breastfeeding in certain populations. Paper six. Okay, paper number six. We're going to continue with our women's health pregnancy theme for, for this episode. So home induction of buprenorphine for treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnancy from Obstetrics and Gynecology, October 2021. 
When you induce a patient with buprenorphine for opiate use disorder, you have to have an opiate-free period or the medication induces withdrawal syndromes because it's a partial agonist to the receptor. So you can cause withdrawal if the patient has opiates in their system. And traditionally, this induction has been performed under direct medical observation. Although in our practice and many sites, according to this article, they do use unobserved home induction for non-pregnant patients as it really reduces the barriers to care and is less resource intense. So any way we can reduce the barrier to use of buprenorphine, it's a super helpful medicine. But we don't know if it's safe and effective for pregnant patients who are starting buprenorphine use for an opiate use disorder. So these authors performed a single center retrospective cohort study of all patients undergoing sublingual buprenorphine induction from 2018 to 2021. They had 55 patients who underwent home induction and eight who were induced in an outpatient observed environment, and the patients got to choose which one they wanted. So the results, no cases of precipitated withdrawal in the home induction group and one in the observed group. Most patients in both groups returned for one-week follow-up and confirmed by urine they were using their buprenorphine, and 90% followed up at one week in the home induction group. Illicit opiate use decreased in both groups over three months, and almost all the patients chose the home induction. So obviously this is a very small sample from one center. We don't know the generalizability, but I think given that we should remove all barriers to buprenorphine use for opiate use disorder, induction can be challenging. It's hard to time appropriately for both patients and doctors, but actually there's good data that show that patients know when to start these medications based on their symptoms. And especially because pregnancy may be the most important time to get a patient started on buprenorphine and to get this right. So small observational sample, one institution suggests to me that home induction is a safe and effective choice. I really like what you said in there, Steve, because I think it's really important. So I'm just going to emphasize it. I've found that Patients with opioid use disorder or substance use disorder, they really know their body. They really know their drugs and they know how their system responds. And, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to them, they seem to be more knowledgeable than I do with regards to various treatments and combinations and things like that. So I'm not surprised that they might have some insight and some things to contribute when they're talking about, well, this is how I'm feeling. So this is when I'll start initiating the treatment because they can feel it, right? Like I have to just observe it and take their signs and symptoms, whereas they're actually living it. So I'm not surprised that they're pretty good. And, you know, like you said, being pregnant, probably a lot more motivated at this time in their life. And so, yeah, take advantage of that, turn it into a positive. They've got the pregnancy going on and see if they can successfully address the opioid use disorder. So I found this study really interesting, small study, like you said. I think it's more like a proof of concept sort of thing. And I'd love to see it replicated with a RCT. Yeah, our addiction medicine guru in our office, who's a family doc, basically tells patients and taught all of us how to do this. Wait until you feel like you're having withdrawal. The longer yeah. you can wait, the better the buprenorphine is going to work for you. Bottom line. Home buprenorphine induction for pregnant patients with opiate use disorder is a feasible option. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. 
Conditioned open-label placebo for opioid reduction after spine surgery, a randomized control trial in pain 2021. Steve, I find the placebo effect fascinating. I mean, while we as primary care physicians will not be doing spine surgery, obviously, at least I don't think you should be, maybe if your hospital gives you credentials, but I suspect they won't. But I thought that there was really something interesting to pull out of this paper. As people who take care of people post-op, I work in the hospital and work as a hospitalist and provide pain management post-surgery. This was really interesting and about the placebo effect. So the aim of this trial was to see if open label, in other words, you told the patient this is a placebo, could be effective in reducing the amount of opioid use and the amount of pain experience. Both really good goals, right? Let's use less opioids, and let's, of course, decrease your pain, decrease suffering. So they took spine surgery patients. These were adult patients, 18 to 65 years of age. They didn't have cognitive impairment. They had to be proficient in English, and they had to be undergoing spinal fusion surgery. Now, remember last month we presented a study that said, yeah, there's not really good evidence, and this is one of the top most common orthopedic procedures done but there really isn't good evidence to support lumbar spinal fusion, but these were the patients we had, okay? And patients were randomized into an open-label placebo. Okay, by the way, we're going to give you a placebo. You got told what a placebo is, you know, the whole concept of placebo, or we're just going to carry on with usual care. All patients were prescribed analgesic medication as per the surgical team to be used on a PRN basis. So they had opioids, and other analgesics available to them on a PRN basis. Now, baseline pain scores were obtained, and they did some bedside quantitative sensory testing. I never heard of this. Did you dig into this part of the paper? They were using needles and jabbing people with needles going, I don't know, how does that feel? Ow. I don't know, how does that feel? Ow. And using pressure, and there's these standardized scales. It reminded me of the Princess Bride, you know, where the guy's getting tortured in the rack and you know, he's like, <laughs> and then he goes, tell me, how did that make you feel? <laughs> I might one day go as high as five, but I really don't know what that would do to you. So let's just start with what we have. You know, I'm just seeing these people, baseline pain scores. I don't know. Let's turn up the cattle prod to seven. Be honest. How do you feel? <laughs> Interesting. But anyways, they got baseline, just I guess to, you know, how everybody's subjective response to pain is different. I mean, I've had patients with hangnails that are beside themselves and that's their pain. And I've seen, you know, people with broken femurs that are going, yeah, no, it's okay as long as I don't move, you know, and they don't want anything for pain. So it's very subjective. So they set these baseline pain scores using needles and pressure things. They got 144 eligible patients, but only 51 agreed. So maybe we got a little selection bias here. Hey, would you like to be in this study after you've just had spine surgery? We might be giving you a placebo or usual care. And the placebo is just a placebo, right? Yeah, <laughs> only one third agreed <laughs> to participate. But hey, here's the results. 30% reduction in opioid use. Heck, that's nothing to chew, sneeze at, right? And the open label placebo group, you know, had this 30% reduction in opioid use. They had less worse daily pain, but it wasn't statistically different, and less average daily pain in both groups. So the trial, I mean, I've got ethical issues with regards to knowingly deceiving patients. So 
this trial gets around that, hey, we're going to give you a placebo. You don't have a problem with that, do you? So you're not deceiving patients in the trial. They were fully informed. The methodology was a little messy without having a primary outcome, of course. That always bothers me. The volunteer bias, like I was mentioning, only about a third agreed to participate. And it was small, obviously, with 51 patients. The trial was done at one tertiary care center with one surgeon. That's it. So it limits the external validity to other surgeons and other practice settings. Within the last year, we've talked about a study for placebo when patients knew they were getting placebo for low back pain. So it just shows, you know, we know that placebo is at least 30%. It's interesting that it's 30%, even if you tell the patient that it's going to be 30%. So for me, this is kind of like file it under the power of placebo. I don't really think it's a practice changer but just more sort of exploration of how our mind and body impact each other, especially when it comes to pain. Bottom line. This is an interesting concept of using open-label placebo to decrease pain and amount of opioids used, but would need much more research before using such a strategy in my practice. Paper eight. Paper number eight. Comparison of Treatments for Frozen Shoulder, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from JAMA Network Open, 2020 in December. And Ken, I think the shoulder is my favorite joint. Really? It's your favorite joint? Why is that? Is there a joke, a dad joke in there? No, no. I, I, it's just like, it does the coolest stuff. It can do, like when you think about like what like a pitcher can do with the shoulder, it's just, it's remarkable. And so because it's my favorite joint, I decided to choose two papers on shoulders this month. So what are the best treatments for frozen shoulder, which is also called adhesive capsulitis? It's pain and progressive loss of movement at the glenerohumeral joint, and it's both loss of passive and active motion, and it's accompanied by essentially normal imaging of the joint. And there's numerous treatment options, and this can be really challenging. In fact, you learn about this as kind of like, look out, this is a big deal, and it is a big deal. And so this meta-analysis assessed and compared effectiveness of available treatment options for frozen shoulder to help us guide our care. The authors searched a whole bunch of databases to find RCTs comparing any type of treatment to any other type of treatment, including placebo. Two authors extracted the data. They followed the PRISMA reporting guideline, and the main outcome measures were both patient-oriented, pain and function, and then they also had range of motion as a secondary outcome, which I won't worry about. So 65 eligible studies, definitely below the LCS threshold, 4,097 participants. So that's well less than 100 on average per study. The outcomes, the results are intraarticular corticosteroids are better than no treatment or placebo for short-term pain, about one point on a 10-point visual analog scale, and also superior to physical therapy for pain, again, about one point. If you look at function, steroids are superior to placebo and no treatment and physical therapy for function with a moderate effect, a standard mean difference of about 0.5 to 0.6. And in the midterm, those are all short-term. In the midterm, if you add therapy or home exercise to steroids, it's beneficial for pain. So many of these studies are small, and especially like we've talked about blinding in almost every one of these studies, especially physical therapy would be hard to blind. But they did assess the risk of bias. They graded the evidence. 
And another thing is it's really hard to standardize home exercises and physical therapy. We talked about that last month, but it does seem reasonable to me that therapy and steroid injections are good treatment options for frozen shoulder. Well, okay. So yeah, lots of studies, uh, lots of small little studies. I went to the supplemental index and 36 of the studies that were included were at high risk of bias. I wish they had that nice little thing where they have the dots where it's yellow for uncertain, green for good and red for bad. I had to actually manually count up in this PDF, you know, 10 pages of all the different studies and look at saying how many had high risk of bias. And it was 36 of them. Now, when you looked at the interarticular corticosteroid treatment for short term, okay, because that's where they said it was, you know, really the best, short term, interarticular, really good, short term, supplemental index, E figure 1A, 11 trials only. So we're not talking about the 30, 40, or 50, whatever trials. They only had 11 trials for that one statistically significant outcome with 568 in total. So we're talking about 50 patients per and it was placebo or no treatment. Hmm. So what do you think the bias would have been? You're getting a needle stuck in your arm or you're getting nothing. I think people on a subjective scale on pain and outcome would say, oh yeah, no, I got this big needle in my arm. It's a lot better than not getting anything. And then I looked at the mean difference. It was 1.28. And I couldn't reconcile this because in the actual forest plot, for that short-term outcome for interarticular, the mean difference was 1.28 there, but it was 1.4 stated in the results section. So I was confused and I couldn't reconcile it. And even if you did accept the 1.4, the 95% confidence interval for mean difference goes down to 0.83. And we know that we need at least 1.3 to be clinically significant. And then the heterogeneity, the I-square test was 46. So I'm like, Yeah, I don't buy it. I think it's a large placebo effect of sticking needles, corticosteroid shots in people's shoulders. So I'm not convinced based on this data. So we prior an agreement that the patient should get therapy. Yes. So then what would you do next? Physical therapy. Yeah, physical therapy. I do not routinely inject steroids into joints. There's just not a great deal of evidence for it. Is it a reasonable option? Like if a doctor is doing it, not routinely, but is it, let's say you've been doing it for three months or six months or the patient's getting worse. Does this tell you that, it doesn't tell you that steroids are not appropriate, right? (laughs) No, no, because that would be a different claim. So the claim would be steroids are superior. I'm not convinced that steroids are superior to a sham injection. And we've seen that with more invasive stuff with the arthroscopy studies right? Taking even people with locking knees, clicking knees, and doing an arthroscopy and trimming the meniscus, and then having the sham surgery and having no difference in outcome. And that's why, you know, the concern is they did short, mid, and long-term outcomes, no difference in mid and long-term, really, right? With just the interarticular injection. And I think that's because the placebo effect of the short-term injection has worn off and everybody's gotten back to their baseline of what they would have been. I think physiotherapy and time Okay. And a lot of empathy. So I'm going to have to add a word for my bottom line to make sure that it's Dr. Milne improved. If you believe in Ken's analysis, you can add the word may into the sentence that I'm about to say. Bottom line. Intraarticular steroids improve pain and function in frozen shoulder and should be accompanied by shoulder exercises. Paper nine. All right. Abstract number nine. 
Guideline Review. This is the American College of Gastroenterologists Clinical Guidelines Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Clostridioids. Is that how I'm supposed to say this now, Steve? Clostridioids? I've said clostridioides, but that's probably no, wrong. No, I, one of my superpowers besides, you know, 80s music and everything Star Trek is uh, mispronouncing names. Let's just put that aside and just call it C. difficile infections. Perfect. American <laughs> Journal of Gastroenterology 2021. Here's the bottom line. Stop giving out so many damn antibiotics for viral illnesses. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No, <laughs> That's um, the bottom line for everything. <laughs> <laughs> the American College of Gastroenterology updated its guidelines from 2013, so that's eight years ago, nine years ago in February of this year, on C. diff. Since that time, the CDC, thank you very much, has changed the name to C. diff, right? That's what I'm calling it, C. diff. There are five areas... Woot, woot. In the guidelines, prevention, diagnosis, treatment, prevention of reoccurrence, and some special populations. So those are the five areas in the guidelines. They had 23 recommendations, and now I'd like to start going through them individually. Uh, no. <laughs> there was no strong recommendations based on high-quality evidence, so not even going to cover those because there aren't any there are only five recommendations based on moderate quality evidence, and the rest was either low or very low. So, hey, I'm just going to go through the five that had the highest level of evidence, which was moderate quality. So there's no high quality evidence. Number one. So number one is they recommend, and listen carefully, against probiotics for the prevention of C. diff infections in patients being treated with antibiotics. They make this as a conditional recommendation, but again, it's based on moderate quality evidence. Number two. The second thing is they recommend oral phenidoxamide. How'd I do there on Steve? That Was that pretty good? I'm going to go with phidaxomycin. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think there was a syllable violation in there. So they recommend that this oral drug be used twice a day for 10 days for the initial episode of non-severe C. diff. And this is a strong recommendation. Number three. I like the next recommendation because I can pronounce it. Oral metronidazole, 500 milligrams three times a day for 10 days to be considered for the initial non-severe cases of C. diff in low-risk patients. A strong recommendation. Again, all moderate quality evidence. Number four. The fourth one, this may be your favorite, Steve, giving the old fecal transplantation be delivered through colonoscope, not orally, or through, oh, I guess, or through capsules for treatment of recurrent C. diff. And this is a, oh, strong recommendation. Number five. And then they suggest one of these, this is the fifth one, they suggest one of these monoclonal antibodies that I'm not even going to try to pronounce be considered for the prevention of C. diff recurrence in patients who are at high risk of reoccurrence. And this is a conditional recommendation. So there's the five, not the 23 but those are the five with the highest quality of evidence, which is only moderate. Now, the biggest risk factors for C. diff is having contact with Steve or I. That means the healthcare system. Having contact with the healthcare system, that's one of the big risk factors. Older age and antibiotic use. They decided in this guideline not to make recommendations about infection control, wash your hands, people, and prevention because there were other guidelines that spoke to these issues. 
the vast majority, and this is 18 out of 23 recommendations, were based on low or very low quality of evidence. So I didn't even put them in the old noodle. They did follow the grade methodology, good, but there was not much else in the description in the guideline process itself. So I'm like, okay, I couldn't reproduce this whole guideline, basically your methodology section. And you know, Steve, that's my favorite section. I mean, give it some love here, people. Beef (laughs) up the methodology section. Don't put it in smaller print or put it in some supplemental. That's where the gold is, Jerry. The gold, I tell you. That's gold, Jerry. Gold. So it's unclear if they followed the Institute of Medicine's guidelines for writing guidelines. I wish they would have referenced those. That was from 2011, those guidelines. And then here's the biggest glaring error that I could identify. And if I'm wrong, I will apologize to these guideline writers. But one glaring error was they did not appear to have any patient input on the guideline development. And, you know, that is one of the three pillars of evidence-based medicine. So you can look at the research as one pillar. We can bring our clinical judgment into it. But you know what? If the patient isn't sitting at the table to talk about their values and preferences, that stool is going to tip over. Yeah. And the other thing is I couldn't tell if there was a specific systematic review like it, it yeah. looked like they kind of just pulled in this. So you have to worry a little bit that they pull in studies a bit selectively if they don't have a systematic review. Now, it's super expensive to do a systematic review. The AHRQ contracts with specific places like Tufts and, and Oregon Health Sciences to do these massive systematic reviews. And it seems like they didn't do that. So I don't know if they just kind of sat around and tried to come up with whatever studies they wanted to use. Yeah, no, like I said, the methodology section was charitably thin, weak, not much to go on. They did basically, I think for treatment for non-severe C. diff, you basically have a choice of oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin. And then if it's a low risk patient, you can use metronidazole. But if it's severe, they want you to do vancomycin or fidaxomycin, but that's based on lower quality evidence for sure. Yeah, no. Maybe next time. Maybe, you know, if anybody here is on that guideline committee, we'll apologize. I'll apologize. I'm Canadian, eh? Um, If I've misspoken, but, uh, you know, get out those Institute of Medicine guidelines for writing guidelines and see if you can beef up the systematic review. I can't remember specifically if they hired a medical librarian, but they're some of my favorite people. They really can help do a systematic review. They've got a skill set that is just phenomenal, so. Bottom line. Preventing C. diff infections by not giving out so many antibiotics. And if patients do become infected with C. diff, there are a few strategies that can help prevent, treat initial occurrences, and also prevent recurrent infections. Paper 10. Okay, paper number 10 is from Annals of Rheumatic Disease from December 2020. Non-surgical and surgical treatments for rotator cuff disease, a pragmatic randomized clinical trial with two-year follow-up after initial rehabilitation. Continue with my favorite joint of the month. (laughs) I'm just wondering how that's going to be interpreted. And now Steve is going to roll up with his 10th paper here for his favorite joint of the month. We're talking about the shoulder, Ken. What are you thinking about? The shoulder joint, clearly. Right. Thank you. So rotator cuff disease can include tendinopathy. You can have a partial tear. You can have a full thickness tendon tear of your rotator cuff. 
And traditionally, we've managed this either surgically or non-surgically, especially physical therapy. So these authors performed a randomized controlled trial in two hospitals in Finland of patients who had long-term pain greater than three months. They found 417 eligible patients out of over 3,000 referrals. So this goes back to the kind of like selection bias in the who's included in the study. But they gave all these patients then 15 therapy sessions for three months, then they had an MRI, and then they were randomized to surgery or not surgery. So this is what I think is pretty cool, the pragmatic part of it, is that they tried three months of therapy on all patients before they even started the study. The primary outcome was change in pain intensity or change in the shoulder rating function at two years. So that was another cool thing about this, is they really looked at a long-term outcome. They did analysis by intention to treat, which is super important because only about 60% of the patients assigned to surgery ended up having surgery and 10 patients who were assigned to not surgery crossed over to have surgery. The baseline visual analog scale was 37 out of 100 at rest and 60 with arm activity. And it turned out once they had the MRI, 50% of these patients had full thickness tendon ruptures. So the results, two-year follow-up, Both surgical and non-surgical treatments for rotator cuff disease reduced pain by about 30 points out of 100 and improved the function by about 20 points out of 100. And there was no difference between the two groups, surgical or non-surgical. They then kind of went in to look at the patients that had a full thickness tear. They did a subgroup analysis. This is hypothesis generating. And they said the improvement of pain for those patients with surgery was a 13-point difference and function a seven-point difference, which favored surgery. So the authors conclude that non-surgical and surgical treatments for, for rotator cuff disease provides equivalent outcomes in pain and function at two years. So therefore, non-surgical treatment is the primary choice for patients with rotator cuff disease. They then go beyond their skis a little bit, and they say the rotator cuff repair may be suggested after failed non-surgical treatment for full thickness tears. So I love the two-year follow-up. The intention to treat may actually blunt the effect of surgery if it's beneficial because many patients crossed over. I love the practical approach of giving every patient three months of therapy before an MRI done. I think that pretty well mimics our current practice. But then they say an MRI may help differentiate those who are unlikely to benefit from surgery with a partial tear from those who may benefit with a full thickness tear. So this MRI at three months, I think is a great time to do a shared decision about whether, you know, if the patient's not considering surgery, then maybe the MRI is not going to be particularly useful. Well, I like what you did there about referring to the authors getting out over their skis. Now, since it was done in Finland, they would be cross-country skis, not downhill skis, most likely, you know. Good point. Yeah, That's the, it's, point. The, it's the little details that we can pick out of these studies for the listeners. But I think this trial agrees with studies that we, or the study that we covered just last month that says there was only good evidence for two out of the 10, top 10 surgical procedures for orthopedics. And one of them was carpal tunnel release and the other one was a total knee replacement. And the rest of them, the other eight, really didn't have good evidence. And one of those was rotator cuff repairs. So this is another piece of evidence to go into that basket to say, We don't have good evidence to support the routine use of surgical treatment. Certainly love to see if they could, uh, you know, 
do a study of just straight up full thickness tears, randomize them to a surgery or a sham surgery and have everybody blinded. And I'd put my nickel down saying at one to two years, they wouldn't find any functional or pain difference. Bottom line. A non-surgical approach to rotator cuff disease is reasonable after three months of therapy and persistent symptoms. Well, Steve, I've been holding back on you. You know, we've done this whole episode, February 2022, and I haven't told you my exciting news. Tell me what? We are going to continue this bromance in person because I'm coming to Arizona to Phoenix in March. What? March of 2022. Dang. All right. Yes. I got I got my flights. I've got the tickets. We're flying out and we are going to do one of these in person together. Wow. <laughs> that is epic. Well, you know, this is the month of love and I love doing this with you. And so I wanted to hold that to give this to you at the end and say, you and E, we're going to be in the same room talking nerdy together. <laughs> That sounds amazing. I can't wait. It'll either be a really good show or it'll be so bad right, because we'll totally. be goofing around so much bugging each other. <laughs> totally. I look forward to it, though. All right. We'll talk to you all next time. I think I can sum this all up. Summary. The summary. First up, let's talk about PCMA. Take it away, Vanessa. PCMA, Article 1. Okay, paper number one. Aspirin used to prevent preeclampsia and related morbidity and mortality. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force Recommendation Statement from JAMA 2021. This update reminds us that preeclampsia is a complicated disease process where race and socioeconomic status are at play in addition to all those confusing physiologic features. Now remember that if your patient is high risk for preeclampsia, then low-dose ASA is recommended after 12 weeks of gestation. Paper number two. U.S. Emergency Department visits attributed to medication harms 2017 to 2019 in JAMA. So there's some sobering numbers here, Vanessa. There are six ED visits for medication harms annually per 1,000 people. That is a lot. And the medications that are associated with the most visits are analgesics, of course, opioids being in here, sedative hypnotics like benzos, anticoagulants, diabetes medication, the most telling here being insulin and antibiotics. So I think this behooves us to educate our patients about appropriate use of medications to monitor therapy and to help them understand how to keep those medications safe and out of harm's way. Paper 3, Effective Music Therapy on Improving Sleep Quality in Older Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, the Journal of American Geriatric Society, 2021. This was an interesting topic and, excitingly, not related to any pharmaceutical intervention for improving sleep quality in older adults. But this review only included small studies and only 300 patients in total, and the results did not show a clinically significant change in sleep quality when music was played. Of course, there's little harm in playing music. So if your patient likes it and finds it helpful, then you can perhaps let it be. Paper number four, relationship between umbilical cord gas values and neonatal outcomes. Implications for electronic fetal heart monitoring in obstetrics and gynecology 2021. This study, which had a large number of participants, found no clinically significant association between cord blood gases and five-minute APGAR scores. And we know, of course, that five-minute APGAR scores correlate well with downstream function and development. 
Paper number five, an infant carrier intervention and breastfeeding duration, a randomized control trial, pediatrics 2021. I was excited that this was another paper looking at an intervention that did not involve medications. Unfortunately, the results here in purely statistical terms were not that exciting. But I think the study has value in reminding us that for most of human history and for the vast majority of the world's population today, carrying your baby during their early months is something that everyone simply does out of pure necessity even if in North America it is being touted as the latest, trendiest way to bond with your newborn. Using an infant carrier also seemed to increase rates of breastfeeding in the U.S. patients studied here, but remember that it is important to support the parents whether or not they choose to breastfeed their child. Paper 6, Home Induction of Buprenorphine for the Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder in Pregnancy, again from Obstetrics and Gynecology 2021. This paper was done to help answer the question, can pregnant women start buprenorphine at home? Or should they be supervised in an outpatient clinic? And you know what? Those who initiated treatment at home did as well as those who were supervised. And this is exciting because we can remove the barrier of pregnant women needing to be supervised when they start this medication. Paper 7. Conditioned open-label placebo for opioid reduction after spine surgery, a randomized control trial in pain 2021. This was an academically interesting paper with results that showed when post-op spinal surgery patients were given an analgesia protocol involving either opiates or placebo, the use of opiates overall decreased. However, this was a small study from the practice of a single surgeon, so not exactly generalizable at this stage. Fascinating look into the placebo effect, but unfortunately not yet enough evidence for me to change my practice. Paper 8, Comparison of Treatments for Frozen Shoulder. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Network Open in 2020. This paper looked at, are intraarticular steroids helpful for this condition? And interesting, Ken and Steve strongly disagreed in their interpretation of the study. But I'm going to side with Steve and say, yeah, intraarticular steroids can help with pain and function in frozen shoulder. As long as, as long as you do those exercises. Paper number nine, the American College of Gastroenterology Clinical Guidelines for the Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of C. difficile Infections in American Journal of Gastroenterology 2021. This guideline looked at the prevention, treatment, and care of patients with C. diff and presents 23 recommendations for us to consider. But only five of those were based on moderate certainty evidence, and there were none based on high-quality evidence. Also troublingly, the methodology was of lower quality and no patients were included in the process of writing the guideline. So it's nice to have an update, but disappointing that this wasn't the most rigorously prepared guideline out there. Paper 10, non-surgical and surgical treatments for rotator cuff disease, a pragmatic randomized control trial with two-year follow-up after initial rehabilitation, the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases in 2020. My favorite part of this study is that it lasted two years, two whole years, stop the bus. That's like forever in study land. It was so nice to see. This study found that doing an MRI after three months of therapy may help differentiate which patients are likely versus unlikely to benefit from surgery. So helpful to have an actual time frame suggestion for MRI and so great to see the study lasting this long. Moving on to the rest of the show. The Generalist. First up was The Generalist, and this month I was joined by Adrian Salim for a chat about pertussis. This isn't something we necessarily see a lot of in North America, thanks to vaccinations, but it is still out there and we need to recognize it. So listening for the whoop, and be sure to do a good social history of the family in order to identify all of those folks you need to contact for prophylaxis. And don't forget to tell public health. Insulin resistance. 
Next up is insulin resistance with Dr. Sarah Johnson. And this deep dive into insulin resistance featured Sarah, who is a triple-boarded physician in EM, public health, and lifestyle medicine. Holy smokes. It included a nice review of the pathophysiology that explains why what we eat matters. This will help us to help our patients understand the role that diet plays in propelling them along the continuum that starts with insulin resistance and can go all the way through to type 2 diabetes. This is definitely something we can use in our practices. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee. Hobie and I were on our soapboxes this month, and I know if you had been on the call, Vanessa, you would have been too, because I know you are also passionate about the role of family docs in inpatient medicine. Definitely. Do not take away my ward job, please. Following our patients in the hospital is just so great for continuity of care. It strengthens the patient-physician relationship, and just on a personal level is really intellectually and professionally gratifying. And get this. Studies show that we're even better than hospitalists on some outcome measures like our patients are less likely to die and they're more likely to be discharged home. And I would say those are some pretty important patient-oriented outcomes. (laughs) You either die or you live in the hospital forever. Those are your choices. (laughs) Right. Or you can see your family doctor. (laughs) Right. I encourage all of you to get on the soapbox and join us on the floors of your local hospital, seeing your patients and being comprehensive family physicians. Rural Medicine Talks. And then rounding it out, we have Rural Medicine. This month's Rural Med story was a little bit different as it was a case of telemedicine. One of my jobs is providing medical support to fishing boats and research vessels, as well as being a backup for the Coast Guard if they are called from boats who have sick crew members or passengers while they're in Canadian waters. So this month's case was a man who went into urinary retention while on a boat, a long way from shore. It goes over some common causes of retention and some first-line approaches and also starts to go down the pathway of what to do if all of that fails, and this man is many hours from accessing medical care. So that's a wrap on Right on Prime this month, but if you still have a hankering for more medical education, check out everything else that MRAP has to offer. Which includes EMA, where they discuss the most recent and potentially groundbreaking papers in emergency medicine. There's MRAP Show Proper, with lots and lots of great content. There's the Corpendium Emergency Medicine online textbook. And of course, it's not too late to sign up for MRAP One. Which is emergency medicine's premier in-person and streamed conference. As always, Vanessa, it's been fun hanging out with you, and I look forward to seeing you next month. And until then, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. matters.